<clears throat> Good evening. I am live and I have coffee and I have the Durham report and I have a mic and a computer. Let's go over it. We are on page 215. So if you're wanting to follow along with the uh, document, we're on page 215 of the actual document. If you're looking at the, the, uh, the PDF, it's, it's number 225 because it's 10 pages ahead. So we're back. This is just human number something. I don't even, I just put it in. I've already forgotten it. 211, I think. And this is the Durham report part eight. We may finish tonight, but I'm not betting on it. Um, I have more than two hours available to me, uh, to stream or maybe a little bit more than two hours. So I'm going to try and get in as much of this as I can. It'd be nice to, uh, get through it all tonight. And then I can start writing an article to summarize it all. But, um, We'll just see. We'll just see what happens. I wouldn't bet on it. Um, if I, um, I, I have my kids out. I'm on summer schedule now. My kids are out of school, so I won't be streaming tomorrow morning. Might try and do a Saturday night again and finish it up this Saturday night. We'll just see what happens. But my goal is to finish it before the end of the week, and we're really close. So we're going to get to it after I remind everybody that. If you're interested in following what I do and you're interested in supporting what I do, best place to go is justhuman.substack.com. That's where you get articles and that is where you get this show as a podcast. You can sign up for the Substack for free and everything on there is free. You can get the podcast for free and you can set it up to download to whatever podcast app you prefer. But if you're looking to support what I do, a paid subscription to my Substack is the best way. Next best way is going to bentonhoneyfarms.com. Get yourself some delicious raw honey directly from the beekeepers. Um, I don't know if Mo, Mo is watching right now, but Mo and her family are awesome. They're the, the Bensons that own this farm. They're wonderful people. I've known them for a very long time. Well, I say that. I've known them for like a year or more, I, I, I think. And uh, I've gotten to know them through their them being in this show and uh, being in the audience. And they're just, they're just great people. I got to meet them at Gart and their products are delicious. I love everything that they have. The candy is candy. Fair warning. I'm not going to tell you that the candy is good for you. And I'm not really going to tell you that the barbecue sauce is good for you, but the honey guarantee it. It's delicious and it's very good for you. It's not pasteurized. It's not over overheated. It's not any of the stuff that commercials, you know, outlets do like, it's it's awesome. Um, their honey is really good. So are their soaps. Uh, those are my two favorite products. I see that they're out of the big jars, but they do have the squeeze bottles in stock. These are perfect. The squeeze bottles are what I use, but when they're available, I get one of these big jars and then just refill the squeeze bottles, right? That's the smart thing to do. Anyway, BensonHoneyFarms.com. Use rep code JUSTHUMAN uh, when you order, and that helps me out helps them out and you get something sweet. Lastly, if you're interested in some merchandise, a shirt, a sticker, a pint glass, a cooler, um, a mug, I have a mug right now. Um, this is my favorite version though. I think it's, I have the OG mug. This is the new version that I think is just really clean and crisp looking. Go to redwhitebourbon45.com, get yourself some merch. That also is an excellent way to support the show. The links for all of these things are in the description. They're on Rumble, or you can go to my link tree via any of my social media sites. In the profile, there'll be a link to the link tree. All right. I'm through all of that. 
last night's power hour was fun. I don't know if y'all watched it, but last night's power hour was fun. And this coffee that I have, um, I bought myself a new French press and I love it. And my coffee is extra delicious and powerful because of it. And, uh, I was a little over caffeinated last night, I think a little bit giddy, but man, it was a fun show. If you missed it, you should go back and watch it. Watch it. Um, it was a lot of fun. All right. Anyway, random comment. Recordings of George Papadopoulos by FBI UCEs and CHS1. In addition to its recordings of meetings between CHS1 and Page and CHS1 and the Trump senior campaign foreign policy advisor, the Crossfire Hurricane investigators also used, or no wait, also used CHS1 to record two meetings with Trump campaign foreign policy advisor Papadopoulos, whose statements to the Australian diplomats formed the predication cited in the FBI opening communications for the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Looking at footnote. From OIG Review, indicating that the FBI did not do anything with this recorded meeting. It was not transcribed and there was no evidence that the recording was put to any use. Okay. Papadopoulos had been announced as a Trump campaign foreign policy advisor at the same time as Page in late March 2016. Subsequent to his, her initial meeting with Page on August 20th, 2016, CHS1, whose experience and credentials regarding foreign policy and presidential campaigns are noted above, arranged for Papadopoulos to visit him or her in September 2016 to discuss the possibility of Papadopoulos writing a research paper on oil, gas, and energy-related issues. These these fields, having having been noted as areas of Papadopoulos' expertise, when he was meant, announced as one of the Trump campaign's foreign policy advisors. Additionally, in connection with CH1, CHS1's two meetings with Papadopoulos, two FBI undercover employees, UCE1 and UCE2, also met and had a total of three conversations with Papadopoulos in September 2016, two of which were recorded. Two of these meetings occurred in a foreign country, and the other occurred while Papadopoulos was going to meet with CHS-1. When interviewed by the office, UCE-1 was certain that nothing of substantive value was said to him or her by Papadopoulos. According to UCE-1, unprompted, Papadopoulos identified himself as a Trump campaign advisor almost immediately after they began talking and showed him or her a picture of Trump and himself. Papadopoulos also told UCE1 that he was traveling to meet an individual whose UCE1 subsequently learned was CHS1. UCE1 and Papadopoulos had a general conversation about the media reports involving Trump and Russia with UCE1 recalling that Papadopoulos laughed off such reports. UCE1 recalled that Papadopoulos made no mention of Russian election interference efforts during their conversations. UCE1 met later with Crossfire Hurricane investigators, briefing them on the conversation that he or she had with Papadopoulos. He or she did not write a report regarding the encounter with Papadopoulos, explaining it was common in UCE1's experience that a case agent would be briefed on the details of meetings, and the case agent was then responsible for writing the report of the meeting. UCE1 advised that he or she had never seen any write-up or report of his or her meeting with Papadopoulos. 
On September 14, 2016, Papadopoulos met with UCE2, who was posing as, a, as an assistant to CHS1. During their conversation, which UCE2 recorded, Papadopoulos provided UCE2 with biographical-type information as well as background information concerning his role in the Trump campaign. Papadopoulos also bragged to UCE2 that, in, that since his initial selection as a campaign advisor, his position in the campaign shifted higher due to campaign management changes. He was with Trump all the time, and he was famous, and his name was now global. One exchange between Papadopoulos and UCE2 was of particular significance regarding Russia. So GP right here is Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos says, the only thing I can't do is any business in Russia right now. Russia has become like a hectic country with the campaign and all the other things. UCE2. What UI on campaign? GP. I read Papadopoulos. Putin says he likes Trump. Trump says he likes Putin. UCE2. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's a problem? Papadopoulos. It shouldn't be. But if I do business, I will give you an example. I was supposed to speak at the largest energy conference in Russia later this month. It is so difficult in the U.S. politically right now. So I can do any uh, I can do any country except Russia. UCE2. Why is it a problem if you want to build bridges to Russia? Why give him, meaning Trump, a hard time about it? Papadopoulos. As you said, he wants to build bridges. The media is saying he's bad. What's important is to deal with Russia. UCE2. Have you ever been to Russia? Papadopoulos. No. All right, let's check some footnotes here. They didn't produce any report of the meeting. Crossfire Hurricane investigators did not prepare transcripts of the conversation we just went over. So references to excerpts that follow are to the recording timestamps. Okay. The following day, September 15th, 2016, Papadopoulos met twice with CHS1. During the first part of their first conversation, which CHS1 recorded at the direction of the Crossfire Hurricane investigators, they discussed a variety of topics, including a proposal that CHS1 made to pay Papadopoulos $3,000 to write a research paper on oil and energy involving Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, Russia, and Syria. After advising Papadopoulos that he or she had met with the Trump campaign's senior foreign policy advisor, CHS1 discussed his or her admiration for Trump's realistic view of Russia. The two then discussed other world affairs involving China, North Korea, and Japan. This comes from 1303 foot, footnote, transcript of conversation with Papadopoulos and CHS1. Testimony to the House Judiciary Committee, Papadopoulos confirmed he had been paid $3,000 for the writing the paper. Okay. Following these discussions, the conversation moved to the campaign when, in an apparent reference to WikiLeaks' disclosure of DNC emails, CHS1 asked Papadopoulos, do they have more? In response, Papadopoulos said, Public statements of Assange has stated that get ready for October. Whatever that means, no one knows. But later in the conversation, in an apparent reference to an October surprise, the following exchange occurred. CHS1. We were frightened to death about those surprises in 1980. That's a clue as to who CHS1 is. GP. Laughing. Hillary is not that bad, but 
hope hopefully for her it is a catastrophe along those lines and uh it it likely will chs1 yeah papadopoulos you know a lot of dirt has come out of the clinton foundation chs1 do you think that's when it will happen papadopoulos it could be that it could be about her health chs1 yeah that's right it could be about her health papadopoulos it could be about her health chs1 release that story Papadopoulos, but it, yeah, it could be, you know, she falsified information. Her doctors, they colluded with the campaign. Who knows when it may be. But the CEO of the Clinton Foundation just yesterday released a statement that, yes, we did provide access for high bidders to the State Department. She's just digging a grave for herself. CHS1, her grave? Papadopoulos, yeah. That's why, that's why I think, and the CEO of the Clinton Foundation came out with a statement that, yes, we're indirectly guilty of providing access to the State Department for the high-level donors to our foundation. Later in the conversation, CHS1 and Papadopoulos discussed what Papadopoulos described as an invitation from the Russian Foreign Ministry of Affairs to speak in Russia, which he turned down because, quote, it's just too sensitive, uh, advisor on the campaign trail, especially with what is going on with Paul Manafort. So, I mean, the man lost his job, essentially, over media allegations, whether they were warranted or unwarranted. Papadopoulos also mentioned another reason for him not going to Russia and discussed Page. Papadopoulos. So, the last thing they needed at that time was, oh, now he's going. Carter Page, I think, was in Russia, though. The entire Trump campaign is in Moscow, within two weeks of each other. And now Mr. Trump is talking about how he adores his relationship with Putin. So, uh, that's the last thing we want to have happen. And he laughs. CHS1. Carter is still maintaining relations with the Russians. Papadopoulos, I don't know, and to be honest, I don't know what Carter has told you or what another Trump foreign policy advisor has told you, but Carter has never actually met Trump. I know he hasn't actually advised him on Russia. He might be advising him indirectly through another Trump foreign policy advisor or, yeah, says CHS1, but the media made a whole fuss about. That's not the reality. A short time later, Papadopoulos described Page as, quote, a very nice guy, you know, very smart. At no time during this conversation did Papadopoulos mention anything about any support being provided by Russia to the Trump campaign, even when the discussion turned to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. None of the statements made by Papadopoulos during his first meeting, including the aforementioned subjects of Assange, WikiLeaks, Page, and the prospect of some October surprise, were referenced in the FISA applications. Later that day, however, in the second meeting between CHS1 and Papadopoulos, there was an explicit discussion about the allegation which predicated the opening of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. The Crossfire Hurricane investigative team's interpretation of that conversation as included in the, in the initial and subsequent page FISA applications, is unsettling. Shortly after the meeting began, the two engaged in a discussion about the recent publication of DNC emails by WikiLeaks. CHS1. I was going to ask you, did you guys have any idea that, um, you know, that the, uh, that the, uh, about the DNC leaks? Papadopoulos. Oh, no. CHS1. Because I thought that was a really significant thing. Papadopoulos. And no one has proven that the Russians actually did the hacking. 
after briefly discussing the possibility of other countries being involved in the DNC computer intrusion. The discussion continued. CHS1. So actually, what you're saying to me is that you didn't feel like the campaign was able to benefit at all from what the Russians could help with? Papadopoulos, what do you mean by, then it's unintelligible, CHS1. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think this is a time when, given Hillary's weakness and given her strengths, that help from, the, from a third party like WikiLeaks, for example, or some other third party like the Russians could be incredibly helpful. I mean, it makes all the difference. Papadopoulos, well, as a campaign, of course, we don't advocate for this type of activity because at the end of the day, it's uh, illegal. First and foremost, it compromises the U.S. national security. And third, it sets a very bad precedence. CHS1, yeah. GP, meaning Papadopoulos. So the campaign does not advocate for this, does not support what is happening. The indirect consequences are out of our hands. CHS1, yep. Yep. Papadopoulos. That's how, that's the best way I can, uh, for example, our campaign is not chuckling. Our campaign is not engaged or reaching out to WikiLeaks or to whoever it is to tell them, please work with us, collaborate, because we don't, uh, no one does that. CHS1. Yeah. GP. Unless there's something going on that I don't know, which I don't, because I don't think anybody would risk their, their life, uh, potentially going to prison or doing something like that. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, it's an illegal activity. Espionage is a uh, treason. CHS1, yeah. Well, particularly involvement with American elections. Papadopoulos, especially if somebody is collaborating with X group that no one yet knows who they are. CHS1, yeah. GP, then, I mean, that's why, you know, it's become a, it became a very big issue when Mr. Trump said, Russia, if you're listening, do you remember? CHS1, yeah, I remember that comment, yeah. Papadopoulos. And you know, we had it, we had to retract it because of course he didn't mean for them to actively engage in espionage, but the media then took and ran with it. Finally, toward the end of their conversation, CHS1 broached the subject one more time with Papadopoulos. CHS1, well, you know, I'm I'm happy to hear from you that um, you know, that there has been no interference in the campaign from outside groups like WikiLeaks or any of these people. Papadopoulos, no. And, 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 uh, to, to run a shop like that, you know, of course it's illegal. No one's looking to, um, obviously get into trouble like that. And, you know, as far as I understand, that's no one's collaborating. There's been no collusion and it's going to remain that way. In this conversation, Papadopoulos clearly stated at several points that he was not aware of the Trump campaign working or collaborating with the Russians in any manner. In fact, he stated three times that such activity by the campaign would be illegal. These statements directly contradicted the underlying premise of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, namely that a member or members of the Trump campaign might be or were colluding with the Russians regarding the release of information detrimental to the Clinton campaign. These were direct Explicit denials by Papadopoulos of his otherwise vague statements to the Australian diplomats about Russian assistance to the campaign. Statements that Australia conveyed may have come from public sources. As previously discussed, these statements were used to predicate Crossfire Hurricane, the active investigation of unknown members of a presidential campaign. 
significantly these explicit recorded denials of Trump campaign involvement excuse me, with the Russians came after the initial meeting between Page and CHS1 on August 20th, 2016. And after the September 21st, 2016 meeting between CHS1 and the Trump campaign's senior foreign policy advisor, both of which were recorded at the direction of the FBI and were in the possession of Crossfire Hurricane investigators. In his conversation with CHS1, Papadopoulos clearly said that such assistance from the Russians would be illegal. This was arguably the most significant information the FBI had gathered after approximately six weeks of investigative effort to evaluate the information they had received from Australia. Yet, the FBI chose to discount the information and assessed it to mean the opposite of what was explicitly said. As reflected in the OIG review, the FBI chose to adopt an interpretation of Papadopoulos' denials of any knowledge of the Trump campaign's involvement with the Russians in connection with the DNC computer intrusion and subsequently, or subsequent publication of certain DNC emails as being, quote, weird, wrote, canned, and rehearsed. They described Papadopoulos as having a, quote, a free-flowing conversation with the CHS that changed, quote, to almost a canned response. Other comments made to the OIG by Crossfire Hurricane investigators included that the perceived change in tone of the conversation may have been an indication that Papadopoulos had been coached by legal advisors to provide certain responses to CHS-1, notwithstanding the lack of any actual evidence to support such a conclusion. In interviews by the, conducted by the office, meaning Durham's special counsel's office, two Crossfire Hurricane investigators gave similar responses to what they previously told the OIG. One agent stated that Papadopoulos' emphatic response to CHS-1's statement of a possible connection between the Trump campaign and the Russians was, quote, curious. So much so that there was a consensus view that Papadopoulos' response may have been rehearsed and was therefore not authentic. Another Crossfire Hurricane investigator briefed several FBI executives regarding this issue, including Deputy Director McCabe. All roads lead to McCabe. Assistant Director Priestab, General Counsel Baker, Section Chief Moffa, and Deputy Director Special Counsel Lisa Page, noting that the general consensus of the group after the briefing was that one of the statements made by Papadopoulos in his meeting with CHS-1, which would normally be considered exculpatory, was instead assessed as an outlier and intentionally scripted by him to give a false impression. Our investigators listened carefully or listened very carefully to this recording and did not detect any change in Papadopoulos' tone of voice when he made these statements to CHS-1. As the Crossfire Hurricane investigators' interpretation of Papadopoulos' actual words was the exact opposite of what was said, and given how critical those words were to the objective assessment of the relationship between the Trump campaign and Russia, the entire exchange between Papadopoulos and CHS-1 should have been brought to the attention of the OI attorneys working with the Crossfire Hurricane personnel on the Page FISA application. The FBI, however, failed to do so at the time, and as a consequence, the FISC also was not advised of the exculpatory statements. Indeed, these statements were, not, were only brought to the attention of the FISC more than two years later, on July 12, 2018, 
when a department submitted a filing with the court pursuant to the requirements of Rule 13, Rules of Procedure for the United States Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, as promulgated under Title 50 United States Code, Section 1803G. I'm looking at the footnotes. The initial FISA warrant was issued October 21st, 2016. So all of what we just read, those recordings, that all happened before that, a month before it. The effort took on additional vigor when four days after the CHS-1 Papadopoulos meetings, Crossfire Hurricane team members first received copies of some of the unvetted and uncorroborated Steele dossier reporting. It's 1326 is that footnote. Okay, we're not there yet. Oh, <laughs> I kind of got ahead of Durham. Importantly, these exculpatory statements were made by Papadopoulos more than a month before the initial page FISA application was submitted to the FISC. Thus, at the time Papadopoulos made the recorded statements, the Crossfire Hurricane investigators were actively involved or were soon to be involved in drafting an updated application asserting that there was probable cause to believe that Page was an agent of a foreign power. Further, one Crossfire Hurricane investigator told the OIG that discussion of the September 15, 2016 meeting between CHS-1 and Papadopoulos and the interpretation of Papadopoulos's denials of cooperation with the Russians remained a topic of conversation for days afterward. Yet the FBI failed to apprise OI, and therefore the FISC, of these significant statements. And look at these footnotes. Okay. Finally, the respect of Papadopoulos, or with respect to Papadopoulos's denial of any knowledge of a relationship between the Russians and the Trump campaign, it does not appear that the FBI gave any serious thought to simply interviewing him to resolve the discrepancy between his unambiguous statements to CHS-1 and what the Australian officials had reported concerning a suggestion regarding possible Russian assistance to the Trump campaign. Thus, an opportunity to potentially resolve any underlying national security concern early on was missed. Okay, these footnotes. According to Case Agent 1, the idea of a direct subject interview of Papadopoulos was, quote, kicked around. As was the, not, the notional idea of going directly to the Trump campaign leadership with a briefing about the intelligence threats. Neither of these approaches were taken and the Crossfire Hurricane team pressed forward with his investigation. Last footnote. As related in the opening EC for the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, quoting the text exactly as it had been received from Australia, quote, Papadopoulos suggested to the Australian diplomats that the Trump team had received some kind of suggestion from Russia that it could assist this process with the anonymous release of information during the campaign that would be damaging to Mrs. Clinton and President Obama. Gotta refill my coffee. Next section is Recordings of Papadopoulos by CHS2. In addition to the recorded meetings Papadopoulos had with CHS-1 and the FBI's UCEs, the undercover employees, during his trip to meet with CHS-1, he also had numerous conversation, conversations which were recorded at the FBI's direction with a second CHS. 
This is going to be CHS2. CHS2 was a longtime acquaintance of Papadopoulos. From the first recorded conversation with CHS2, which occurred on October 23rd, 2016, so that would be after the FISA warrant was gained, until their last recorded conversation, which occurred on May 6, 2017, CHS2 made a total of 23 separate recordings for the FBI. CHS2 challenged Papadopoulos with approximately 200 prompts or baited statements, which elicited approximately 174 clearly exculpatory statements from Papadopoulos. While their recorded conversation totaled 120 hours and 17 minutes, covering a wide variety of topics, many of which did not relate to the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, there were a number of conversations that were particularly relevant. Indeed, over the course of their recorded meetings, Papadopoulos repeatedly denied that he, the Trump campaign, and Russia had some type of cooperative relationship. However, as with the statements Papadopoulos made in his monitored conversations with CHS1, none of Papadopoulos's exculpatory statements to CHS2 regarding his lack of knowledge of assistance from the Russians to the Trump campaign were included in the succeeding page FISA renewal applications. 174 clearly exculpatory statements, zero communicated to the OI or the FISA court. And we have big footnotes on this. Good evening to everybody that's over on Foxhole watching. Thank you for being there and appreciate it very much. Everybody watching on Rumble. I know I'm up against a lot of a lot of other stuff going on tonight. Badlands had an interview and then Trump's in Iowa. I don't know what else is going on. I think Altered States is on tonight, I think, isn't it? Um, or maybe I'm thinking of a different Badlands show. There's another Badlands show on tonight, but don't go over there right now. Stay with me. Um, no, I don't care. Y'all can go where you want. Okay, we got big footnotes for this. The OIG report notes that similar denials made by Papadopoulos in interviews he conducted with the FBI were included in the second and third FISA renewals. However, these denials submitted as a footnote, as footnote number four, to the two renewals, contained qualifying language regarding the denials. While noting that during his interviews with the FBI, Papadopoulos had denied discussing anything related to, the Russia, to Russia during his meetings with the Australian officials, the footnote also contains the FBI's belief that the interview responses to FBI questions by Papadopoulos regarding these denials were misleading and incomplete. With regard to misleading and incomplete information being provided to the FBI, Papadopoulos was subsequently charged in a one-count information with and convicted of making false statements in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1001-A2. Specifically, during his first interview with the Crossfire Hurricane agents on January 27, 2017, which is around the time they interviewed Danchenko also, Papadopoulos told the agents about an individual associated with the London-based entity who had told him about the Russians having, quote, dirt on Clinton. Although Papadopoulos provided the FBI with the name of the individual and where he could be contacted, Papadopoulos lied to the agents about when he had received the information. It was received after, not before, he was named as a foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign, and he downplayed his understanding of the individual's connections to the Russian government officials. This comes from U.S. versus Papadopoulos, Document 19, Statement of Offense, Paragraphs 1 and 2, or Lines 1 and 2. 
In addition, Papadopoulos misled the agents about his attempts to use the individual and a female associated with that person to arrange a meeting between the Trump campaign and Russian government officials. Ultimately, Papadopoulos pleaded guilty to making false statements. On multiple occasions, he then met with, answered questions for, and provided information to the government, and eventually was sentenced to 14 days of incarceration. Make sure that's the end of that footnote. Yeah, it is. Hey, back to the report. On October 29th, 2016, in a conversation with CHS 2 that occurred approximately one week after the initial initiation of the FISA surveillance on Carter Page, and 10 days after the election, Papadopoulos and CHS had the following exchanges. 10 days before the election, sorry. CHS 2. You think Russia is playing a big game in this election? Papadopoulos, no. CHS2, why not? GP, why would they? CHS2, don't you think they have special interest? GP, I do not think so. That's all expletive. CHS2, you don't think they hacked the DNC? Who hacked the the effing DNC then? (laughs) GP, it could be the Chinese. It could be the Iranians. It could be Bernie supporters. It could be anonymous. CHS, remember the time period we're in. They didn't have as much information about the DNC hack as we have now. So keep in mind, this is October 29, 2016. So, so this is uh, a day after Comey reopened the investigation into Hillary Clinton's email server, by the way. Yeah, this is the day after Comey reopened it. You don't think, okay, because I have been GP, because I've been working for them the last nine months, meaning the campaign. That's how I know all of this stuff has been happening. What over the last four months, CHS two, but you don't think anyone would have done it like undercover or anything like that. Papadopoulos, you know, when I was in redacted, this redacted and he has, and he was like a big advisor, asked me the same question. I told him absolutely not. And he actually was probably going in to tell the CIA or something if I'd have told him something else. I assume that's why he was asking. And I told him absolutely not. There's absolutely no reason. First of all, it is illegal, you know, to do that expletive. No one would put their expletive life or risk at risk or going to jail for the next 50 years to hack some expletive that may mean nothing. Later in the conversation, Pompadopoulos addressed the topic again in response to CHS2's inquiries. GP, first of all, it is illegal to do that, so no one in their right mind would, right? Finally, the two discussed it one more time. CHS2, do you think maybe Russia would have done it because they could get away with it? GP, any foreign government. CHS2, they can get away with it? GP, yeah, yeah, any foreign government. The language used by Papadopoulos in his conversation with CHS2 is consistent with the language he used in his conversation with CHS1 almost six weeks earlier. Indeed, as noted above, Papadopoulos told CHS2 that he told CHS1, whom he did not identify to CHS2, the same thing he was telling CHS2 regarding allegations about the Trump campaign in Russia. Despite these denials, Papadopoulos by Papadopoulos to two different CHSs at two different times and places as captured and memorialized on recordings made at the direction of the FBI. No information from either recorded conversation was brought to the attention of the FISC. 
in the applications for the page Pfizer renewals or at any other time. Notably, these statements were made by Papadopoulos, not just to an individual who was meeting for the first time, CHS1, but also, as the Crossfire Hurricane investigators well knew, to an individual with whom he had been well acquainted over a long period of time, that being CHS2. And yet another conversation between CHS2 and Papadopoulos, which occurred on January 25th, 2017, that would be two weeks after publication of the Steele reports by BuzzFeed, and amid media speculation that Sergey Milion, a person Papadopoulos had met and with whom he corresponded, was the source for some of the allegations in the Steele reports, Papadopoulos expressed concerns about Milion to CHS2. Interesting. In this regard, the following relevant comments were recorded by CHS2. Papadopoulos. I think he, meaning Million, was trying to get me to say a Trump person was trying to do business on the side with the Russians. That is what I think. Okay, I got to pause. Because I've talked about before that Million, I've got a big question mark over him. And that is a very interesting thing for Papadopoulos to say. Because he's communicated with Million during the time period where if Million was a bad guy who had a role in this frame-up job on Trump, would be active in that frame-up role. And Papadopoulos says of Million that he thinks Million was trying to get me to say a Trump person was trying to do business on the side with the Russians. That is what I think. I am not part of the government. I have never been to Russia in my life. CHS2. Have you done anything to like help? Expletive? GP, I'm telling you, I've done nothing. Huh. Papadopoulos' denial to CHS2 of working with the Russians was not mentioned in the FBI's second or third renewal application for FISA warrants on page. As noted above, certain denials made by Papadopoulos in FBI interviews were mentioned in a footnote, but the Crossfire Hurricane team reported that it believed Papadopoulos was misleading in those interviews. This denial from Papadopoulos in this conversation with CHS2, which occurred prior to those two renewal applications being submitted to the FISC, was also omitted from any discussion in that referenced footnote. In a third conversation, which took place on March 20th, 2017, Papadopoulos and CHS2 briefly discussed media reporting regarding an FBI investigation of the Trump campaign and possible contacts with Russia during the 2016 presidential campaign. The fact of the investigation had been the fact of the investigation had been publicly reported that day in congressional testimony given by then-FBI Director Comey. This March 20th, 2017 conversation included the following relevant exchanges. Papadopoulos. They are doing an investigation, huh? CHS2, did you see Comey's press? GP, if they are trying to prove that people in the campaign were like sitting with Russians, like colluding, what expletive are they even talking about, you know? What does that even mean, colluding? That means they were sitting in a room together plotting expletive. What is the craziest that which is the craziest thing I have ever heard in my life? CHS2. Is it though? 
GP, I think so. I highly doubt someone would be doing that. First of all, it would be suicide, you know? What I, what I think is going to end up happening, I think that it will be like, oh, some of these guys were talking about, but, you know, some expletive like that. I do not, I do not know. What do you think? CHS2, I think everyone's expletive. GP, no, even the guy, the congressman, who's like focusing the committee today, uh, Adam Schiff, because I was I was watching him after breakfast, and he's like, if people met with them or are doing business in Russia, that's not a crime. The crime that we are looking into is if there was like collusion, which like I said that would be expletive nuts, but I don't believe it. CHS2, you think anyone involved would have been dumb enough to leave a paper trail? GP, well, like I said, I don't. I, I think it would just be insane. I just don't think anybody would be that psychotic unless they have like medical problems. Okay, look at these footnotes, audio recording, second Pfizer renewal, on April 7th, Matapuzo, New York Times, okay. As with previous statements made by Papadopoulos to CHS1 and CHS2, which were relevant to the predicating information for the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, none of this additional dialogue, wherein Papadopoulos expressed absolutely no knowledge about Trump campaign slash Russia collusion, was mentioned in either the second or third page renewal application submitted to the FISC. The omission of these March 20th, 2017 statements of Papadopoulos is even more concerning in that he made them the very same day the FBI director publicly confirmed the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, which brought heightened attention to these matters. Finally, in a fourth conversation between Papadopoulos and CHS2 on March 31st, 2017, they once again briefly discussed possible Russian interference in the 2016 election. The following exchange took place. CHS2. Do you think the Russians would come and kill you if you said something? Like the Russian mafia? GP. I have nothing to do with the Russians. CHS2. If Russia expletive meddled in our elections, what else are they controlling about us? That just makes America look weak. GP. I still don't believe that they did. I'm liking Papadopoulos. <laughs> the more I'm reading this, the more I'm liking Papadopoulos, even though I think he said some dumb stuff to try and impress people. <laughs> the more I read this, the more I'm like, Papadopoulos is based. He doesn't buy the bullshit. As in the early in earlier instances, these exchanges between Papadopoulos and CHS2 were not mentioned. In, in fact, hold on. Imagine if Papadopoulos wasn't based and wasn't like shrewd right here. And imagine if he was like ran his mouth way more than he should and tried to act like something was going on. Like imagine if Papadopoulos was not smart enough to just outright deny this Russia collusion allegations and instead engaged in bar talk about, man, that'd be crazy if they had, man. Like just imagine if he had just rambled on about the possibility, how much worse this all could have been. Good on him for being being shrewd and aware enough, even before he knew there was an investigation going on. Saved his own butt, that's for sure. Two weeks in prison versus two years. They would have tried to get him on all sorts of things if he had even just fantasized about collusion. Okay. 
As in the earlier instances, these exchanges between Papadopoulos and CHS2 were not mentioned in the second or third FISA renewal applications targeting page. Nevertheless, it illustrates a consistency in Papadopoulos' denials that either he individually or, to his knowledge, others in the campaign, Trump campaign, colluded or worked in collaboration with the Russians during the 2016 presidential campaign. These statements of Papadopoulos to two individuals with whom he talked openly and believed he would, could trust, statements which undercut the legitimate concerns raised by the Australian reporting and which resulted in the opening of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, along with Page's statements in meetings with CHS1 on multiple occasions, were deliberately ignored or missed by the FBI, preventing other entities, such as the OI and the FISC, from being able to adequately scrutinize the FBI's FISA submissions. Other aspects of the Page FISA applications. Yeah, Cajun, this entire thing was based on bar talk. I mean, from Papadopoulos' role. The entire Papadopoulos' role in this is entirely based on him running his mouth to some Australian diplomats right after he was added to the Trump campaign, basically being boisterous. That's that's it. I mean, even without that, I'm sure they would have found something else to predicate it. Um, they would have created something else to predicate it because they needed to get this started because this was part of Hillary's plan. Uh, Papadopoulos was just. He was just a convenient mark for them. And I don't think they ever planned on him. I think Papadopoulos. Was kind of random, right? He just. Because the only reason the FBI find out, found out about Papadopoulos and what he said to the Australians was because WikiLeaks leaked or WikiLeaks published some Hillary emails, which caused the Australian diplomats to go, oh, I seem to recall an odd conversation with someone from the Trump campaign about Russia helping them out somehow. And then they forwarded that information to the FBI, who then predicated crossfire hurricane on it. So originally I don't think Papadopoulos was the plan. I think the original plan was actually the alpha bank hoax. I really do. I think what they thought they would feed them was the alpha bank hoax from Sussman and Mark Elias. And then they would get, they would get the FBI chasing down what Joffe and the Georgia Tech researchers created, which was this fake communication between a Trump server and Russia, which is much more substantive. Like, imagine if they actually could have pulled that off and gotten some people to believe that it was real. You would have had a real communicative link, not a suggestion of Russia helping out, but you would have had a concrete link between Trump campaign server and a Russia based server for alpha bank. Um, I think that was their first, that was what they really going for. And then the steel dossier, those were the two, but Papadopoulos came about. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. And maybe the Australians were communicated to by Clinton people and were told to, try and have conversations with Papadopoulos and to pry into campaign matters. And, you know, and that's how maybe 
Maybe he was some, maybe, you know, that general directive was put out because they were certainly scraping for any, anything at all that would connect Trump to Russia. But as I've talked about before, they skipped over obvious things, which is really weird. They skipped over some really, really obvious Trump Russia connections that they could have gone with. Like there's a property that Trump sold to a Russian for way higher than Trump bought it for which in and of itself is just good business for Trump, right? Like, good job, Trump. But they could have taken that real estate deal and put it in into the Steele dossier or just as an item, as an aside, distributed that to the media and said, hey, do some investigative reporting on this because it looks like Trump took this massive double-digit percentage profit margin on this property, sold to some Russians. Is this a payoff? Did they disguise a payoff to Trump by having this Russian overpay for real estate? But they ignored stuff like that. All right, back to the report. E3, E3 cents. Good evening. They said they tried running with the Russian real estate deal, but much later on. Yeah. So like after that, some of this other stuff had already like not like not gone over well. <laughs> I mean, Alpha Bank, Alpha Bank never really got off the ground, right? The media did a campaign for it, but it was the FBI didn't fall for it. The FBI was like, this is BS within 48 hours of getting the Alpha Bank data. I'm like, this is BS. Why are we looking at this? And then the FBI agent was like, we need to go talk to whoever got this stuff. We need to go interview the people behind this. And um, the people above them wouldn't let them. Anyway, I'm about to rabbit trail big time. All right. Other aspects of the page FISA applications. One, multiple levels of subsources. Much of the probable cause in page applications is based on multiple layers of subsource reporting. The first surveillance application said of a key informant, Steele, that, quote, source number one maintains a network of subsources who, in many cases, utilize their own subsources, the source reporting in this application, which was provided to the FBI by source number one, is derived primarily from a redacted who uses a network of subsources. Thus, neither subsource one nor the redacted had direct access to the information being reported by the subsources identified herein. Clear as mud? I thought so. In other words, much of the information came through at least three people before it reached the FBI. If I, if that, what I just read you sounded convoluted and like what the, what they went through, what it's because it was the bottom line is that much of the information was trafficked through three people before it reached the FBI. Meaning that's one hell of a telephone game. And we all know how the game of telephone works. What the FBI eventually got only resembled vaguely what it started out as. Referring to Steele's subsources, supervisory intelligence analyst Brian Otten stated that he, quote, did not have a good handle on how the subsources worked or who had what access to whom. He went on to say that, quote, by late January 2017, we knew we had a three layer problem regarding Steele's subsources. Moreover, 
Once Danchenko had been interviewed, Crossfire Hurricane investigators knew that Danchenko was not operating a network of subsources, but rather would talk with people in his social circle about issues and then would report what he learned to Christopher Steele. Reliability of subsources. One of source number one's subsources reported that there was a, quote, well-developed conspiracy of cooperation. This was quoted twice in the initiation as it was at the heart of the factual information. The subsource said the conspiracy was, quote, between them, assessed to be individuals involved in candidate one's campaign, and the Russian leadership. This was managed by candidate one, number one's then campaign manager, who was using foreign policy advisor Carter Page as an intermediary. They're talking about Trump and uh, Manafort, okay? There is no discussion in the FISA application of the reliability of the subsource who provided this information, and the FBI has secured no evidence that corroborated the allegations. Role of campaign manager. Although the campaign manager was reported to be managing the cooperation with Russia, the application included no other information, such as information about suspicious Russian contacts with the manager to support that statement. Based on our review, the FBI had no substantive evidence that corroborated this allegation. Involvement in criminal activity. The Page FISA initiation approaches the issue of Page's involvement in criminal activity in a manner consistent with FISA's legislative history. Quote, as the activities discussed herein involve Page aiding, abetting, or conspiring with the Russian government officials and the elements and elements of the Russian intelligence service in clandestine intelligence activities, the FBI submits that there is probable cause to believe that such activities involve or are about to involve violations of the criminal statutes of the United States. In applying the higher standards of criminal involvement to Page, the application did not discuss the standard or explain how it was met beyond what is stated above. Okay, now we're going to get into prosecutorial decisions. This should be very interesting. In light of the foregoing, the special counsel carefully reviewed and analyzed the evidence related to one, Kleinsmith and the altered email, two, statements made to the FBI regarding the Steele reports, three, the receipt and dissemination of the Steele reports, four, the Yahoo News article, five, the use of the Steele reports in the FISA application's targeting page, six, Igor Danchenko including the legality of Danchenko's visa arrangement and the FBI's handling of the prior counter-espionage investigation of Danchenko. Seven, the recordings of Page, Papadopoulos, and others. And eight, the certification of the Page FISA applications. In determining whether the actions of individuals or entities warranted criminal prosecution, the special counsel adhered to the principles of federal prosecution. And we got some footnotes. Tells you to go somewhere else for a discussion on parts of something involving Carter Page. Other footnotes also describe subsources and state that they did not know that their reporting would be directed to the FBI, but the footnotes do not provide any information about what about the reliability of the subsources. Okay. A. Kevin Kleinsmith. Not only was the altered email itself a falsified document, 
The statement Kleinsmith made in the altered email and in the instant messages to Supervisory Special Agent 2 that Page was not a source was also false. In fact, Page had been a source for the OGA and had provided direct reporting to the OGA in the past. When interviewed by the OIG, and as later confirmed when interviewed by our investigators, OGA Liaison 1 described Page as a, quote, source under the FBI's terminology and said that the reason she offered an email to assist in providing language for the FISA application was because she was telling Kleinsmith that using the FBI's terminology, Page had been a source for the OGA. As the liaison told the OIG, it was incorrect to describe Page as a subsource. The liaison also stated that she saw no basis for Kleinsmith to have concluded, based on their communications and the August 17th memorandum, that Page never had a direct relationship with the OGA. In addition, the liaison said that she did not recall having any telephone discussions with Kleinsmith on this issue. When interviewed by the office, the liaison confirmed the accuracy of the information that she provided to the OIG. The alteration made by Kleinsmith also was unquestionably material to the final page FISA application. As several individuals involved in the application process explained in the interviews with the office, Page's status as Page's status as should have been disclosed. Page, I think there's a word missing here. Page's status as a source should have been disclosed to the FISC because it bore on whether there was probable cause to believe that Page was acting as a foreign agent of a foreign power. OI Attorney 1 stated that it would have been a significant fact if Page had a relationship with the OGA that overlapped in time with his interactions with known Russian intelligence officers. They were described in the FISA application, as was the case here, because it would raise the issue of whether Page had those interactions with the intent to assist the U.S. government. Deputy Assistant Attorney General Stuart Evans stated that that a FISA target's relationship with an OGA is typically included in the application, and he believed the information about Page's prior relationship with the OGA should have been disclosed, because it, quote, goes to the question of where the person's loyalties lie. Indeed, Klein Smith himself knew that if Page had been a source for the OGA, that information would, indeed, would need to be disclosed to the, in the FISA application. Klein Smith acknowledged as much in his original email to OGA Liaison 1, stating, quote, this is a fact we would need to disclose in our next FISA renewal. Later, when interviewed by the OIG, Klein Smith stated that there was, quote, a big, big concern from both NSDOI and from National Security Division and from the FBI that we have been targeting a source because that should never happen without us knowing about it. Kleinsmith added that if it were true, they would, quote, need to provide the information to the court because such information would, quote, drastically change the way we would handle the FISA application. Yep. Supervisory Special Agent 2 also described the importance of knowing Page's prior relationship with the OGA. According to Supervisory Special Agent 2, quote, if Page was being tasked by another agency, he was, especially if he was being tasked to engage Russians, he was, and then it would absolutely be relevant for the court to know, it was, and could also seriously impact the predication of our entire investigation, which focused on Page close and continuous contact with Russian and Russia-linked individuals. Exactamundo. 
When interviewed by our office, Supervisory Special Agent 2 echoed the information he provided to the OIG. To that end, Kleinsmith was the person that Supervisory Special Agent 2 relied on to resolve the issue of whether Page had been a source for the OGA in the past. Kleinsmith's statement to the Supervisory Special Agent 2 that the OGA had said explicitly that Page had never been a source was, quote, the confirmation that he needed. According to Supervisory Special Agent 2, the language that Kleinsmith inserted into the liaison's email that Page was, quote, not a source was the most important part of the email for him. Supervisory Special Agent 2 stated, quote, if they say Page is not a source, then you know we're good. Supervisory Special Agent 2 further stated that if the email from the liaison had not contained the words, quote, not a source, then for him, the issue would have remained unresolved and he would have had to seek further clarification. As Supervisory Special Agent 2 told the OIG, if you take out and not a source, it doesn't really answer the question. Supervisory Special Agent 2 also stated that even a verbal statement from OGA Liaison 1 would not have resolved the issue for him. As discussed above, the OIG subsequently conducted a review of the FISA applications targeting Page and discovered Kleinsmith's conduct in altering the email. When confronted with the altered email by the OIG, Kleinsmith initially stated that he was not certain of how the alteration occurred, but subsequently acknowledged he made the change. The seriousness of the Kleinsmith conduct is highlighted by the FISC's reiteration of the fact that, quote, the government has a heightened duty of candor to the FISC in ex parte proceedings. And the FISC expects the government to comply with its heightened duty of candor in ex parte proceedings at all times. Candor is fundamental to this court's effective operation. In submissions dated October 25th, 2019 and November 27th, 2019, the department provided the FISC with notice of Kleinsmith conduct and the failure to disclose Page's prior relationship with the OGA. On, on August 19th, 2020, the office charged Kleinsmith in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia with the felony offense of making false statements in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1001-A3. On that same date, in the case known as United States versus Kevin Kleinsmith, Kleinsmith waived indictment and pleaded guilty to a one-count criminal information. On January 29, 2021, Kleinsmith was sentenced to a term of 12 months probation. Finally, it appears likely that political or personal bias contributed, at least to some extent, to Kleinsmith's conduct in this matter. As mentioned in the OIG review, Kleinsmith had also been investigated by the FBI's Office of Professional Responsibility and ultimately suspended for sending improper political messages to other FBI employees. On the day after the 2016 presidential election, Kleinsmith wrote, quote, I am so stressed about what I could have done differently. Well, that's quite a thing to say. I am so stressed about what I could have done differently. Hmm. In a later exchange with another FBI colleague, Klein Smith was asked, quote, 
Is it making you rethink your commitment to the Trump administration? And Klein Smith replied, hell no. And then added, viva la resistance. B. Statements made to the FBI regarding the Steele reporting. As an initial matter, despite multiple requests to his counsel, Christopher Steele refused to be voluntarily interviewed by the office. Steele was hired by Fusion GPS to essentially conduct opposition research against then-candidate Trump in the midst of a U.S. presidential election. While many may find this practice unseemly, Political opposition research is a firmly entrenched feature of U.S. electoral politics and existed in one form or another since the founding of the nation. Nonetheless, the office examined evidence to determine if anyone knowingly passed materially false information to the government, including to the FBI, State Department, or to members of Congress. In his two interviews with the FBI's Crossfire Hurricane investigators and the Mueller investigators, in October 2016 and September 2017, Steele provided the FBI with his understanding of how the allegations contained in his reporting were gathered, which, according to Steele, was almost exclusively through the efforts of Igor Danchenko. During those interviews, Steele told the FBI about, among other things, his understanding of Danchenko's subsources, the location of those subsources, and the time period in which Danchenko purported to collect the information. As discussed above, a significant amount of the information still provided to the FBI conflicts with what Danchenko would later tell the FBI in the January 2017 interviews and beyond. For instance, with respect, respect to Mikhail Kalugin, the Mikhail Kalugin allegations in Report 2016-111, Steele told the FBI that Danchenko learned of Kalugin being located in Moscow after he, Danchenko, randomly bumped into Kalugin on a street in Moscow. For his part, Danchenko informed the FBI that he learned of the Kalugin allegations while Kalugin assisted him with renewing his Russian passport. Danchenko also told the FBI that he, Danchenko, did not provide Steele with the Kremlin's rationale for the recall, i.e. Kalugin's involvement in Russia's efforts to interfere with the U.S. presidential election. By way of another example, Steele told the FBI that Danchenko had personally met with the alleged Steele report source Sergei Milion on at least two occasions. During his interviews with the FBI, Danchenko denied telling Steele that he had met with Milian in person, although he acknowledged knowing that this was Steele's belief, and Danchenko did not correct Steele in the matter. Danchenko was adamant about only receiving an anonymous call from a Russian male whom Danchenko believed to be Milian. These are just two examples in which Steele's recollection of events differed significantly from those of Danchenko. Okay, I did see some re reports about Rumble having some issues. On my end, everything is great. I hope Rumble's working, but I do see reports of other folks have had issues tonight. So if you're watching on Rumble, if you if it's working, awesome. If it's not working, I am also streaming on Twitter, Boxhole, DLive. Yeah, I'm all those places. So if, uh, if something doesn't work for a minute, and you want to change sites, those are all the places I'm at. All right, I want to make a comment. Um, of course, if it's not working at all, you don't know what I just said, but I'm assuming maybe it's working a little. Uh, 
right here on what Steele said about Danchenko and Million. Again, I've got this question mark above Million. And when I read this right here, Christopher Steele thought Christopher Steele thought Million and Danchenko had met. Danchenko knew that he never met Million. And he knew that Steele thought he did. And Danchenko did not correct him. But Danchenko was working for Steele to gather this information and give it to him so it could be turned into the Steele dossier. Why would Christopher Steele think that Danchenko met with Million? And why would Danchenko not correct that? And I think that th what best explains that is that it was Steele's understanding that Million and Danchenko were supposed to meet. They were supposed to meet. And Danchenko left Steele with the impression that they did because this was never supposed to all come undone. And Danchenko didn't want to communicate to Steele that actually Million had never answered his phone calls or emails and they'd never been able to connect. It's possible it was all part of a scheme to frame Million, as is popularly believed. I can get there on that. But I can also entertain the idea that Million is a part of this and was supposed to meet, was really supposed to meet with Danchenko and give him this information. And that then that interview that Million gave with mainstream media and then the pictures of Million with other Russians and then his picture with the Trump campaign, they, it was just supposed to be, Million was supposed to represent a Russian person inside the Trump campaign, I think. I think that was the goal is to set Million up as a person inside the Trump campaign with Russia connections and all of this stuff. And the question really is, was Million witting of this or unwitting? And I think he, I think there's a strong possibility he was very witting of it and that he realized things were not going well. There's something, something made him skittish. Something made Sergey Million not communicate back to Danchenko. And we know that Milion was aware of who Danchenko was and why he was communicating with them at least a little bit, because we have the messages from the Russian journalist and who was trying to set Danchenko and Milion up. So remember, I talked to you about him. He's a nice guy. He wants to talk to you about this and this. He does some real estate for Trump. Like, like he was trying to connect them, right? Anyway, sorry to harp on that over and over again when it comes up, but I just, I just feel like it's a, it's one of the, uh, I don't know, one of the nuts in this thing that hasn't been cracked open or one of the onions that hasn't been fully peeled, whatever you want to say. There's just, there's something there just, just, just doesn't quite fit nicely. And then Million's subsequent behavior just draws more of my attention. Anyway. Good evening, Salt Muncher. OG Wiz, welcome. Cajun, saw you earlier. Deb, welcome. Bertorgo, Poso for Hope. Good evening as well. Okay. 
We are on page 233 of the actual report if you're following along. Or if you're looking at the PDF, it is going by the top number in the PDF. It's page 243. Actual page number of the report is 233. The office attempted to reconcile these conflicting versions of events, but was largely unsuccessful. See, look right. I should have read that before I went on my rant. Look at that. Even John Durham is like, WTF is going on here, guys. <laughs> Even John Durham's like, <laughs> this is John. This is how John Durham says WTF, guys. In case you don't know, this is how he says it. Instead of just saying, what the fuck, Durham writes, we attempted to reconcile these conflicting versions of events, but were largely unsuccessful. That's, that's Durham's way of saying WTF. Indeed, untangling the web of allegations proved difficult, given that one, the office was unable to interview Steele or Danchenko. Two, both Danchenko and Steele said that they destroyed all notes reflecting the content of their meetings and communications. You know, that's what you do when you're innocent. You just destroy all evidence that you were ever talking to one another. It's kind of like their boyfriend and girlfriend and they broke up. And they're just like burning each other's shit. It's like that. It's totally understandable. Three, Danchenko deleted most, if not all, of his emails during the relevant time frame. Wonder why. And four, Danchenko's alleged subsources, which the notable, ex- with the notable exception of Charles Dolan, were all domiciled overseas. Thus, while the office examined the feasibility of false statements charges against any participants in the creation of the Steele dossier, there was insufficient definitive evidence to warrant bringing such charges. Huh. All right, so Durham is saying... That, I mean, to me, it sounds like he's saying, I considered bringing more charges against Danchenko, and I considered bringing charges against Steele, but I'm missing an interview with Steele or Danchenko who would not sit for an interview with my office. Both of those guys destroyed evidence, both physical evidence and digital evidence. And the subsources that Danchenko alleged, such as the people at the Ritz Carlton and some others, all of them except Charles Dolan are overseas and not interested in working with my office. Uh, that's what he's saying. So basically, he says the office examined the feasibility of false statement charges against Steele on this matter and decide they it was insufficient they didn't have enough i can understand i can understand that this is now by the way this is just on this matter of whether or not he lied about subsourcing and all this other stuff and the reports okay the fbi's receipt and dissemination of the steel reports the winding and disjointed path the steel reports traveled to arrive at fbi headquarters on september 19 2016 is certainly concerning Indeed, the office was never provided a satisfactory explanation of why the Steele reports took 75 days to reach the Crossfire Hurricane investigators. I have an explanation. 
They didn't want him to arrive too close to the election or too far away. They wanted them to arrive with just enough time for an investigation to start and dirty up Trump, but not so much time that it would be exposed as a hoax and fall flat. I think that's what's up. Remember, if she wins, she can fire Comey, make McCabe director, and McCabe can just bury it all. And yeah, and then she'll just, and then nothing, that would be the real cover up, right? So I think that partially explains why there was this gap. Even more basic, FBI records were insufficient to establish who came into contact with the reports before September 19th to say nothing of the motivations of those individuals in deciding to advance or hold the reports. Despite repeated interviews and good faith attempts to refresh recollections, the path of the Steele reports is littered with failed memories and inconsistent versions of events. And that is, those are massive red flags. The movement of the Steele report through the FBI was absolutely coordinated people. It arrived when these Swamp creatures intended it for it to arrive. The evidence gathered was not sufficient to prove at trial that any FBI personnel intentionally violated any criminal statutes in relation to the transmittal of the steel reports, nor was there sufficient evidence to establish that any FBI personnel intentionally lied during their interviews. The Yahoo News article. As noted, on September 23rd, 2016, Michael Isikoff published an article in Yahoo News titled, quote, U.S. Intel officials probe ties between Trump advisor and Kremlin. The article detailed Page's alleged meetings with Sechin and Divyekin and contained information that was nearly identical to Steel Report 2016-94. The information in the article allegedly came from a well-placed Western intelligence source and had been confirmed by a, quote, senior U.S. law enforcement official, probably McCabe. The FBI's initial assessment of the article, an assessment ultimately confirmed by Steele, was that Steele had leaked the information to Yahoo News. Understandably, following a review of the initial draft FISA application targeting page, senior personnel in OI and ODAG raised concerns that the Yahoo News leak revealed a potential significant bias on Steele's part. OI was initially told that the FBI's assessment was that the information in Yahoo News had come from Steele. Again, as discussed in detail below, uh, detail above, part of the FBI's work during its October 2016 interview of Steele in Rome was to determine if Steele had been the source of the leak to Yahoo News. Following the October 2016 Rome trip, several drafts of the page FISA application were circulated that contained a footnote reflecting that Steele had, in fact, been the source of the information in the Yahoo News article. Upon review of these drafts, department and OI leadership continued to press the FBI on whether Steele harbored a bias given his willingness to speak with the press. Thereafter, on October 14, 2016, a Crossfire Hurricane investigator emailed an OI attorney stating that Steele had not previously mentioned the leak to Yahoo News and, quote, only acknowledged it when the FBI brought it up on October 4th. This is despite the fact that when an interview by the special counsel, 
every FBA, FBI participant in the Rome meeting could not recall the issue of the Yahoo News leak being discussed with Steele. Otten, for his part, had a vague recollection that one participant in the meeting may have spoken with Steele about the issue prior to the meeting with Crossfire Hurricane personnel, a contention that part, that participant adamantly denied. Nevertheless, the next draft of the Page FISA application contained a footnote stating that the FBI assessed that Steele provided the Yahoo News information to his business associate, who, in turn, passed it on to the law firm that hired the business associate. Understandably, department leadership had trouble squaring this assessment with the plain reading of the Yahoo News article, which stated that, quote, a well-placed Western intelligence source in the context, Steele, had provided the information directly to Yahoo News. On October 17, 2016, the FBI conducted a link call over top-secret servers with OI to discuss this issue, and the FBI purported to resolve all the questions raised by department leadership. During their respective interviews with the special counsel, not a single participant in that call could recollect the rationale for the changed assessment. Ultimately, the footnote in the final application submitted to the FISC reflected that Steele had not been responsible for the leak of Yahoo News. The office was left to answer the obvious question. How did the FBI's assessment change from the rational assessment that Steele leaked the information to Yahoo News to the unfounded assessment that Steele was not responsible for the leak? Unfortunately, this question remains unanswered. Despite repeated interviews and attempts to refresh recollections, we were left with what investigators and analysts stated were failed memories and, as a consequence, inconsistent versions of events. The office, however, struggles to credit the failed recollections of those whom the office interviewed, given the import of the information to the ODAG and senior officials in the NSD. Uh, That's Durham saying they're lying. (laughs) That's Durham saying, yeah, these people are lying to me, but I can't prove it. In any event, given the dearth of contemporaneous documentary evidence conflicting or reflecting the events in question, the available evidence was insufficient to definitively establish that any of the participants intentionally, one, submitted false information to the FISC, two, provided false statements to the special counsel, or three, violated the civil rights of Page. Again, the office was unable to establish that any government officials acted with a criminal intent to violate the law, as opposed to mere negligence or recklessness. Nevertheless, the FBI's conduct concerning the Yahoo News issue is extremely troubling. Again, the office is left to speculate that the FBI's unfounded assessment of the Yahoo News information was driven by the pressure emanating from FBI headquarters executives to convince FISA surveillance of Page. Indeed, OI Attorney 1, in his contemporaneous email to OI Unit Chief 1, noting that Crossfire Hurricane investigators, quote, never asked and didn't want to ask about the Yahoo News leak encapsulates this office's findings in this matter. The use of the steel reports in the page FISA application. 
The pressure on Crossfire Hurricane investigators to commence FISA surveillance coverage of Page was palpable in the late summer and early fall of 2016. Indeed, as discussed above in Section 4D1A1, multiple FBI and department employees described the unusual interest of high-level FBI executives in the Page FISA application. The inclusion of the unvetted seal reports in the Page FISA applications is problematic for the FBI, but the issue for the special counsel was whether it constituted a provable federal crime. At the time of the initial application, not a single substantive allegation contained in reports 80, 94, 95, or 102 had been corroborated in any meaningful way by the FBI. The allegations in those reports and used in the initial FISA application were not merely ancillary facts that supported supported substantiated allegations. Rather, they contained extremely serious and indeed shocking allegations to the effect that one, the Kremlin was supplying the Trump campaign with compromising information on Hillary Clinton. Two, Page, an advisor to the NASCAR campaign. I mean, (laughs) I saw NASCAR in chat and I just read NASCAR in the report. Lynn, Bert, Lynn, you did that. That's your fault, Lynn. <laughs> I'm bad about that. If I glance over and see a word, but I'm already reading something, I'll just say the words I see. I probably do it every now and then. And I don't even notice it, but y'all notice it. All right. Two. Okay. One, wait. One, one of the allegations, one, the Kremlin was supplying the Trump campaign with compromising information on Hillary Clinton. Two, Page, an advisor to the Trump campaign, was actively engaging with Russian officials to discuss the lifting of sanctions against Russia, as well as the sharing of compromising information on Hillary Clinton. Page three, Page was serving as an intermediary between Trump campaign manager Manafort and Russian officials in what the Steele reports described as a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation. And four, Russia had released hacked DNC emails to WikiLeaks, an idea allegedly conceived of by Page. Again, at the time these serious allegations were put into the Page FISA application, the FBI had not corroborated any of these claims. As discussed above, the Crossfire Hurricane team received the steel reports on September 19, 2016. Approximately two days after the receipt, the uncorroborated information from the steel reports was inserted into the request for FISA surveillance of Page. The special counsel's interviews of the relevant players in the drafting of the Page FISA have all acknowledged that minimal effort had been undertaken at that point to corroborate the still reporting. Rather, to a person, the FBI and department personnel have all stated that the still reporting was deemed reliable based on Steele's prior history as an FBI CHS as well as his past employment with the British intelligence services. While undoubtedly the past performance of a source is an important factor in determining the reliability of information, surely establishing probable cause to accuse a U.S. person to say nothing of a U.S. presidential campaign advisor with colluding with a foreign adversary requires, at a minimum, some degree of independent corroboration. Notably, not one of the damning allegations contained in the Steele reporting was ever corroborated. Not the salacious allegations of events at the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow, 
not the allegation of there being a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between Trump and the Russians, not the allegations of secret meetings involved involving Page and certain sanctioned Russians, namely Igor Sechin and Igor Devyekin, and not the allegation of Page serving as Manafort's conduit for information between the Russians and the Trump campaign. This is true even after the FBI had offered Steele $1 million or more for such corroboration and after Danchenko was signed up as an FBI CHS and paid more than a quarter million dollars for information on other matters. In addition, Helson, who was um, Danchenko's handling agent, Helson told the special counsel's office that, as reflected in reports he had written on March 1st, 2017 and March 16th, 2017, there had been no corroboration of what Danchenko alleged about the Steele reporting during his three-day interview with the FBI. Moreover, Otten told the office that to the best of his recollection, when they checked with another U.S. intelligence agency on matters relating to the Steele reporting, they received no corroborating information back. As one longtime counterintelligence expert at that agency told the office, the dossier contained unverified allegations from subsources who allegedly provided the information, information that the government could not obtain despite its vast intelligence resources and paying millions of dollars for intelligence. Indeed, after the Steele dossier was leaked and became public, that expert's reaction was to ask the FBI, quote, you didn't use that, right? One Crossfire Hurricane investigator said out loud what others may have been thinking. The initial FISA application targeting Page was being done in the hope that the returns would, quote, self-corroborate. Here, the pressure from FBI leadership to commence surveillance of Page, coupled with the FBI's previous unsuccessful attempt to advance the application against Page, provided the Crossfire Hurricane investigators with ample motive to include the unvetted steel reports in the FISA application. Although the evidence assembled by the office may have been sufficient to meet a negligence standard, in order to prove a criminal violation of Carter Page's civil rights, the government would be required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that one or more persons acted intentionally to violate his rights. What, in our judgment, would be the admissible evidence in such a prosecution did not meet that standard. In addition, in order to prove a false statement charge under 18 U.S.C. 1001, such a prosecution would have to rest largely on not what was a provable affirmative false statement, but rather on material omissions Page's relationship with other government agency, Page's exculpatory statements to a long-term FBI CHS, and the like. Given the claimed inability of the principal actors to recall the details of critical conversations, and the lack of evidence as to who was responsible for information that was concluded or withheld in the, in the FISA applications, the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt could not be met. Accordingly, the office did not seek criminal charges against any FBI or department personnel in relation to the inclusion of the steel reports in the four-page FISA application presented to the FISC. 
Okay, there is something here right there. Um, he's saying, he says the special counsel's office did not seek criminal charges against any FBI or department personnel in relation to the inclusion of steel reports in the four page of FISA applications. Now, I'm not trying to like force a white pill here, but the sentence, don't get it wrong. He's not saying he didn't seek criminal charges against any FBI department personnel, period. He's saying in relation to the inclusion of steel reports in the page FISAs. So he's being specific. That could mean there are criminal charges recommended or even sealed against FBI department personnel in another matter. But when it comes to the steel reports matter and the FISA applications, Durham didn't see criminal charges for the uh, the reasons I just read. Man, this coffee's good. Igor Danchenko. In November 2021, a grand jury sitting in the Eastern District of Virginia returned an indictment charging Igor Danchenko with five counts of making false statements to the FBI. The false statements, which were made during Danchenko's time as an FBI CHS, related to his role as Steele's primary subsource for the reports. First, the indictment alleged that Danchenko stated falsely that he had never communicated with Dolan about any allegations contained in the Steele reports. As discussed above, the documentary evidence clearly showed that Dolan was the source for at least one allegation in the Steele reports. Specifically, that information concerned Manafort's resignation as Trump's campaign manager, an allegation Dolan told Danchenko that he sourced from a GOP friend, but that he told our investigators was something he made up. The allegations regarding Dolan formed the basis of count one of the indictment. Second, the indictment alleged that Danchenko falsely stated that in or about late July 2016, he received an anonymous phone call from an individual whom Danchenko believed to be Sergei Milion. Danchenko also falsely stated that during this phone call, one, the person he believed to be Milion informed him in part about information that the Steele reports later described as demonstrating a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between the Trump campaign and Russian officials. And two, Danchenko and Milion agreed to meet in New York. The available evidence was sufficient to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Danchenko fabricating these facts or Danchenko fabricated these facts regarding Milion. The allegations regarding Milion formed the basis for he meant basis for counts two through five of the indictment. Following a one week trial and before the case went to jury, the court dismissed count one of the indictment pursuant to federal rule of criminal procedure 29. The court held that Danchenko's statement to the FBI regarding Dolan, i.e. that he, Danchenko, never talked to Dolan about anything that showed up in the dossier, was literally true, because in fact the information that Manafort was exchanged over email rather than an actual verbal conversation. The court denied Danchenko's Rule 29 motion to dismiss related to the remaining counts of the indictment. Following two days of deliberations, the jury concluded that the case had not been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. In determining whether to bring criminal charges against Danchenko, the office expected to be able to introduce additional evidence against Danchenko that supported the charges, the charged crimes. Thus, prior to trial, the office moved in limine 
to introduce certain evidence as direct evidence of the charged crimes. Alternatively, the office moved to admit the evidence as, quote, other act evidence pursuant to Federal Rule of Evidence 404B to prove Danchenko's motive, intent, plan, and absence of mistake or accident. In particular, the office sought permission to introduce evidence of, one, Danchenko's uncharged false statements to the FBI regarding his purported receipt of information reflecting Trump's alleged salacious sexual activity at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Moscow. In particular, the office planned to call as a witness the German National General Manager of Ritz-Carlton, identified in Steel Report 2016-080 as Source E. The office expected the general manager would testify that he, one, had no recollection of speaking with Danchenko in June 2016 or at any time. Two, had no knowledge of the allegations set forth in the Steele report before their appearance in the media. And three, never discussed such allegations with Danchenko or any staff member at the hotel. Two, Danchenko's uncharged false statements to the FBI reflecting the fact that he never informed friends, associates, and or sources that he worked for Orbis or Steele and that, quote, you, the FBI, are the first people he's told. In fact, the evidence revealed that Denchenko on multiple occasions communicated and emailed with, among others, Dolan regarding his work for Steel and Orbis, thus potentially opening the door to the receipt and dissemination of Russian disinformation. And three, Denchenko's email to a former employer in which Denchenko advised the employer, when necessary, to fabricate sources of information, specifically on February 24, 2016 just months before Danchenko began collecting information for the Steele reports. The employer asked Danchenko to review a report that the employer's company had prepared. Danchenko emailed the employer with certain recommendations to improve the report. One of those recommendations was the following. Quote, Emphasize sources. Make them bold, of capitalized. The more sources, the better. If you lack them, use oneself as a source, location redacted, Washington-based businessman, or whatever, to save the situation and make it look a bit better. Danchenko's advice that he attach multiple sources to information and obscure one's own role as a source for information was consistent with Danchenko's alleged false statements in which he denied or fabricated the roles of sources in the Steele reports. The court ruled, however, that the evidence described, uh, described above was inadmissible at trial. The prosecution was forced to then proceed without the benefit of what it believed in good faith was powerful, admissible evidence under Rule 404B. Yeah, I remember this. <laughs> I remember reading this 404B filing. And I remember that the Ritz-Carlton manager was supposed to be there. Durham had more evidence against Danchenko than he was allowed to present. The legality of Danchenko's visa arrangements. The office consulted with attorneys and investigators from the Department of Homeland Security, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, to determine if Danchenko's U.S. visa was obtained through fraudulent pretenses given in the office's view. The unusual circumstances in which an individual lists a U.S.-based employer as the sponsor of the visa application, that would be Danchenko Employer 1, 
but is in actuality employed by a foreign entity, Orbis, and merely paid by the sponsoring entity for work done on behalf of the foreign employer. The USCIS informed the office that this arrangement was legal. The office also reviewed the evidence of Danchenko's circuitous payment stream to determine if Orbis, Danchenko Employer 1, or other entities engaged in money laundering in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1956. Given the apparent legality of Danchenko's visa arrangement, however, the office determined that no specified unlawful activity could be proven. He didn't say it didn't occur, guys. He just said it couldn't be proven. H. The FBI's handling of the prior counterespionage investigation of Danchenko. The failure of the FBI to assess properly the prior counterespionage investigation of Danchenko is incomprehensible. The investigation related to Danchenko's pitching a person he thought perhaps was going into the Obama administration for classified information. Although the conduct of certain FBI employees was, at best, negligent with respect to the prior investigation of Danchenko and his subsequent use as a CHS, we did not find any evidence that the FBI personnel acted with specific intent, which the statute requires. To, to permit knowingly false information received from Danchenko to continue to be used in FISA applications. Prosecution, therefore, was not supported by the available evidence. One, the recordings of Page, Papadopoulos, and others. The office carefully removed or carefully reviewed and analyzed the evidence related to, among other things, one, the FBI's handling of the recordings made by CHSs and UCEs, two, the conduct of the CHSs and UCEs in making those recordings, and three, the FBI's failure to include key exculpatory material from those recordings in the page FISA application. As discussed more fully below, in determining whether the actions of individuals and entities warranted criminal prosecution, the office adhered to the previously delineated principles of federal prosecution. CHS-1's recording of Page. As discussed throughout this report, one of the key allegations contained in the Steele reporting, and which would later underpin the Page FISA applications, was the existence of a, quote, well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between the Trump campaign and Russian leadership. This alleged conspiracy purportedly was managed by, Rush, by campaign manager Paul Manafort using Page and others as intermediaries with the Russians. On its face, this was a shocking and serious allegation of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. However, as discussed in detail above, during the first recorded meeting between Page and CHS-1, Page never once indicated that he maintained a relationship with Manafort despite several efforts by CHS-1 to establish such a relationship. In fact, Page explicitly denied ever having met or spoken with Manafort. While Page said he had sent a couple of emails to Manafort during his time on the campaign, he noted that Manafort did not respond to any of these emails. These assertions made by Page could have easily been corroborated through basic investigative steps and legal process, but were never undertaken. Moreover, as discussed above, 
The, the Page FISA applications also relied on uncorroborated allegations from the Steele reports that Page had met with Igor Sechin and Igor Divyekin in July 2016 to discuss the removal of certain sanctions against the Russian government. In his recorded meeting with CHS1, however, Page denied meeting with Sechin or Divyekin and further denied even knowing who Divyekin was. Following the release of the Yahoo News article on September 23, 2016, Containing these same allegations, Page made similar denials in his letter to Director Comey and volunteered to be interviewed by the FBI regarding the accusations. Despite these recorded exculpatory statements made by Page and the denials contained in his letter to to Comey, the FBI submitted its initial Page FISA application on October 21, 2016 containing the uncorroborated steel report allegations discussed above. The application inaccurately stated that, quote, Page did not provide any specific details to refute, dispel, or clarify the media reporting, and he made vague statements that minimized his activities. In fact, the only fair reading of Page's statements to the CHS-1 regarding Manafort is that Page explicitly denied meeting or speaking with Manafort about any subject, to say nothing of the allegations regarding collusion with the Russian government. In the same vein, the only fair reading of Page's statements to CHS-1 regarding Sechin and Divyekin is that Page explicitly denied meeting with either individual and in fact had never even heard of Divyekin. These multiple explicit denials to CHS-1 were not included in the initial Page FISA application or subsequent renewals. Further, During the pendency of the Page-Pfizer renewals, the FBI obtained additional information that should have cast further doubt on the allegations contained in the applications, including, but not limited to, 1. Page's denials of the allegations during a series of interviews with the FBI in March 2017, and 2. The FBI's interview of Steele's primary subsource, Igor Danchenko, which, as discussed more fully below, cast further doubt on the nature of any alleged relationship with the Trump campaign and the Russian government. The Crossfire Hurricane investigators did not correct the errors, omissions, and misrepresentations that were contained in the initial Page FISA application. In subsequent... (coughs) (coughs) Sorry, guys. I have a little water. Sorry about that. Some I don't know what that was. Um, where was I? Arrows and statements to be evasive. Similarly, when interviewed by the OIG, the investigator stated that Page, quote, minimized. He kind of vis- vacillated on some things. So that's our that was our my, my assessment of what he said. Again, a fair reading of the transcripts of the recorded meetings between Page and CHS1 revealed that Page was, if nothing else, explicit in his denials regarding Manafort, Sechin, and Divyekin. Based on a review of all the evidence, the office concluded that the Crossfire Hurricane investigators, while aware of Page's explicit denials regarding the allegations, appear to have chosen to cloak those explicit denials in unsupported assessments to not endanger the viability of the Page FISA applications. While the evidence assembled by the office may have been sufficient to meet a negligence standard, in order to prove criminal violation of Page's civil rights, the government would be required 
to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that one or more persons acted intentionally to violate those rights. What, in our judgment, would be the admissible evidence in such a prosecution did not meet that standard. Okay, now, I just want to point out, Durham's kind of given a qualifier here. He could have written, given given the information this office has gathered, in our view, it doesn't meet that standard. But he's leaving, he's leaving a door open. He's, he's putting a qualifier here. He's saying in our judgment, what in our judgment would be admissible evidence. And this is not the first time he said this. He said it somewhere else where he declined. And he's saying that, look, uh, there's looking at the evidence that I have, of which I think can be admitted to court. I don't think I can, pr- I can meet the standard to prove a criminal violation here. And remember earlier on in this report, he said that there, when he talked about delineation delineations, meaning prosecutions, he decided not to bring. He said that some of the prosecutions he didn't bring because of the highly sensitive and classified nature of the evidence he would need to bring to trial. He didn't think he would be able to bring it. I think he's leaving the door open for some other authority to be able to like, it's either, well, it could be two things. It could be both of these things or one of them. It could be that there's some classified information he wants to bring to court and that would help him bring a prosecution against some of these people we've been going over, but it's really classified. So he needs, he needs someone that's that up there. Uh, like he needs the DNI or he needs Garland or somebody. Uh, or the DIA, I don't know, to either declassify it so it, it'd be available, or it's tied into another investigation that is sealed and he can't use it because it's part of some other indictment that hasn't been unsealed. Because he's not saying here that there was no evidence of intentionality. He tells you what he would be required to prove if he brought if he brought a criminal case, what what he's required. And then he's saying, in my view, the evidence I need, I don't think I can admit it. I can get it admitted to court in order to bring the prosecution. I really, yeah, E3 sense. I really think it's because it's tied into something else. I really do. I think it's a DNC hack. If I have to guess on what it is tied into, it's tied into the DNC hack. And I can understand why that case needs to play out first, which probably means Julian Assange needs to be extradited, please, so that he can have his trial. Because that's probably what unlocks some of this stuff, you know, is Assange. Anyway, back to the report. We're on page 241. In addition, in order to prove a false statement or perjury charge, such a, such a prosecution would have to rest largely on not what was provable 
affirmative false statement, but rather on material omissions. Given, among other things, one, the reliance by the investigators on their professional assessments, two, the claimed inability to recall the details of important conversations, three, the lack of evidence as to who was responsible for information that was included or withheld in the FISA applications, and four, the inability to prove intent, the office concluded that the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt could not be met. Accordingly, the office did not seek criminal charges against any FBI or department personnel in relation to the page exculpatory material being withheld from the page FISA applications. Again, Durham is, he's narrow right here. This, this section had to narrowly, it narrowly dealt with um, the exculpatory statements. The previous one dealt with Steele dossier, but also with page FISA. He's dealing with each one of these with a narrow view of where he could have brought charges on this specific thing. Next part, recordings of George Papadopoulos. The FBI also recorded meetings between Papadopoulos and FBI CHSs and UCEs. During the course of these meetings, Papadopoulos denied Russian assistance to the Trump campaign, notwithstanding repeated attempts by CHS1 to link the WikiLeaks disclosures of DNC emails to the campaign and assertions set forth in the page FISA applications. In fact, when asked by CHS1 if the campaign had advanced knowledge about the WikiLeaks disclosures, Papadopoulos replied no. Papadopoulos stated that the campaign would not, would not compromise the U.S. national security. Papadopoulos also stated that this type of activity is espionage and treason. Papadopoulos also made repeated denials about the campaign's involvement with the WikiLeaks disclosures to a second CHS. These highly probative statements, some of, which, some of which were made before the initial page FISA application, were not included in that application or any subsequent renewals. Perhaps more importantly, these statements did not cause anyone in the FBI to question the initial predication for Crossfire Hurricane, namely Papadopoulos' alleged statements to the Australian diplomats regarding Russia's offer of assistance to the Trump campaign. Similar to the page, page exculpatory statements, the, the Crossfire Hurricane investigators chose not to credit Papadopoulos' statements and assess them to be weird, wrote, canned, rehearsed, and without citing any evidence, the product of legal coaching. Indeed, when interviewed by the office, one Crossfire Hurricane investigator repeated that assessment, noting that Papadopoulos' statements were curious, rehearsed, and therefore not authentic. <coughs> Likewise, when interviewed by the office, another investigator recalled briefing FBI executives about the Papadopoulos statements, including McCabe. And no <laughs> thank you, Durham. And noted that the statements were deemed to be scripted to give a false impression. For the same reason stated with respect to Page, the evidence assembled by the office in relation to the exclusion of Papadopoulos' statements in the Page FISA application may have been sufficient to meet a negligence standard but was insufficient to bring criminal charges against any FBI or department personnel. Conduct of CHS-1. Right, there's the last of my coffee. As discussed above, on December 15, 2016, CHS-1 and Page 
had the third of what would eventually be four recorded meetings. In that meeting, CHS1 and Page discussed, among other things, the potential formation of a London-based think tank focusing on Russia's relations with the West. Although the two discussed Secretary of State nominee Rex Tillerson's relationship with Igor Sechin, and also briefly discussed a Washington Post column mentioning Page's purported relationship with Sechin, the subject of Page meeting Sechin and Igor Divyekin was not raised during this meeting. Nevertheless, a few days later, CHS-1 informed Case Agent 1 that Page, in fact, had told CHS-1 that he had met with Sechin on his most recent trip to Russia. According to Case Agent 1, CHS-1 purported to recall this information after reading about Sechin in the newspaper. A review of the transcript of this meeting and carefully listening to the entire recorded recording revealed no such statements by Page. In reviewing the transcript or listening to the recorded conversations appears to have been a basic step that Case Agent 1 did not take. The office examined whether CHS-1 made an intentionally false statement to the FBI and whether he provided uh, or when he provided this information, but was unable to establish that CHS-1 intentionally lied to the FBI. Next, certification of the FISA applications. The office also assessed whether there were any criminal violations in the certifications made by senior government officials as part of the page FISA applications. The certification addresses the foreign intelligence purposes or purpose of the application, such as a purpose of obtaining information, quote, necessary to protect against clandestine intelligence activities by an intelligence service or network of a foreign power or by an agent of a foreign power or information with respect to a foreign power or foreign territory that is necessary to the national defense or security of the United States or the conduct of the foreign affairs of the United States. The official must also certify that the foreign intelligence sought cannot be obtained by normal investigative techniques and explain the basis for that certification. The certification of a FISA application does not cover the accuracy of the information in the application itself. That is addressed by a sworn statement from an FBI agent. The certifications met the requirements of FISA. Our investigation did not reveal that any certifier lacked a reasonable basis for believing that the assertions as to the purpose of the application were true. The examples and explanations provided in the certification strongly supported the assertions that a significant purpose of the applications was to obtain foreign intelligence information. Certifiers also certified that the foreign intelligence sought could not be obtained by normal investigative techniques. The certifications listed other techniques that might be used to investigate Page. Again, our investigation did not find that any certifier lacked a reasonable basis for believing that the assertions about the use of investigative techniques were true. The certifications explained the basis for the statements logically and in a manner that was relevant to the Page applications. Okay, this is section E. We're starting a new section. We're at the bottom of page 43. It says Alpha Bank and Yodaphone allegations. I want to look ahead because we have just a little over 50 pages left. We have like 63 pages left. So I want to see this document so big it lags when you scroll through it. 
Bias and improper. I just want to see what's ahead of us so I can get an idea. This FISA issues is part C. I saw a mention of DNC servers. Okay. Perkin Cooey statement. Okay, this is going to start a brand new topic getting into Yoda phones and Joffy and all of that. Sussman. I love all these topics, by the way. Where was I back at? To. Sussman's meeting with the FBI. I'm looking forward to what's coming up next. Okay, that's where this is where we're at. Page 243 of the actual document, or 253 if you're looking at the PDF from justice.gov. Let me check. I've been going, we're right at two hours right now. I say, let me take just a couple minute break to go get a glass of water and uh, then we'll come back and I'll keep going until uh, my wife and kids get back and I start hearing them stomping around upstairs. Uh, so anywhere between another 15 minutes to an hour, we'll keep going because I, I don't, I think they'll be home probably in 30 minutes. So we can probably get another 30 minutes out of this. All right, let's have a quick intermission because I need some water and uh, and then we'll come back and, and do some more of this. All right. Sound good. Sounds good to me. Let, me. let me bring this music up. Intermission time. I was staying in New York at the time in an almost deserted downtown back.
about him that makes a girl want to take him in her arms and... Welcome back. All right. What I'm thinking is, by the way, that's Brock Berrigan. I love all of his music. If you want to look him up, Brock Berrigan. Um, what I am thinking is that I want to get a little bit deeper into the report. Go for another 30 minutes at least. Because I want the next session that we get to be the end of it. I want the next session to be, we finish it. And that'll mean I have nine parts to reading this Durham report. <laughs> and then I'm going to write a Substack summarizing it. And like the most important things that are in it. And I'll do part 10 will be just that like a recap of the highlights or whatever. And uh, I like that. I think I like uh, 10 parts. You know, that'll be something like 20 hours or so of coverage of the Durham report. And I'm sure we've taken our time with it. Um, I like that. I think, I think that's what I want to do. So let's get a little bit deeper into this. My nose is, of course, itchy because trees and flowers and every mold, everything. I'm allergic to everything. On God's green earth. Just about. Thank God I'm not allergic to coffee. At least he didn't do that to me. All right. Part E. The Alpha Bank and Yodaphone allegations. One, factual background and Alpha Bank. Introduction. The special counsel office's investigation identified evidence that certain individuals... Oh, wait. I need to show y'all what I'm reading, don't I? Hold up, hold up. There we go. The office's investigation identified evidence that certain individuals and entities sought to support the Clinton campaign by promoting allegations to law enforcement and the intelligence community related to Trump and its campaign. The office considered whether the activities of these individuals or entities, as well as government officials, violated any federal criminal statutes. In particular, we examine the validity of the allegations and whether these individuals or entities conspired with the Clinton campaign to provide false or misleading information to law enforcement and the intelligence community. First, the office identified certain statements that Michael Sussman made to the FBI and the CIA that the investigation revealed were false. Sussman was a partner at Perkins Coie, the law firm that served as counsel to the Clinton campaign. A grand jury in the U.S. District Court of, of Columbia, or for the District of Columbia, found probable cause to believe that Sussman lied to an FBI official and returned a one-count indictment charging him with making a materially false statement in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1001. As set forth in the indictment, on September 19, 2016, 
less than two months before the 2016 election, Sussman met with FBI General Counsel Baker. Sussman provided Baker with data and white papers that allegedly demonstrated a covert communication channel between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank, a Russia-based bank. The indictment alleged that Sussman lied in that meeting, falsely stating to Baker that he was not providing information to the FBI on behalf of a client. Instead, the office's investigation revealed that Sussman had assembled and conveyed the allegations to the FBI on behalf of two clients, Rodney Joffe, an executive at Tech Company One, and the Clinton campaign. After a two-week trial, a jury found that the case against Sussman had not been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Second, as explained further below, the office's investigation uncovered evidence of numerous actions by individuals and entities with ties to the Clinton campaign to promote the Alpha Bank allegations to the intelligence community and the government. The office also uncovered evidence that individuals and entities with ties to the Clinton campaign promoted allegations that Trump or his associates were using in the vicinity of the White House and other locations, one or more phones from the Russian mobile phone provider, Yodafone. The office considered the validity of the allegations and evaluated whether the conduct of these individuals or entities constituted a federal offense and whether admissible evidence would be sufficient to obtain a conviction for such an offense. Ultimately, the office concluded that our evidence was not sufficient to obtain and sustain a criminal conviction. Not yet, anyway. I added that. The office also examined the FBI's actions in relation to the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations. In doing so, the investigation assessed whether any FBI or other federal employee conspired with others to promote the allegations in order to benefit the Clinton campaign in a manner that would constitute a federal offense. The office's investigation did not establish sufficient evidence that any FBI, FBI official or employee knowingly and intentionally participated in a conspiracy with others to promote the allegations to falsify government records, to obstruct justice, or to cause the FBI to open an investigation into them as part of such a conspiracy. Sussman's attorney-client relationship with Clinton campaign and Joffe. As part of its investigation, the office obtained billing records from Perkins Coie related to the firm's representation of various individuals and entities, including the Clinton campaign, Tech Executive One, and Rodney Joffe. The records reflect that Sussman repeatedly billed the Clinton campaign for his work on the Alpha Bank allegations. In compiling and disseminating these allegations, Sussman and Joffe also met and communicated with Mark Elias, another partner at Perkins Coie who was then serving as general counsel to the Clinton campaign. By way of background, in April 2015, the Clinton campaign engaged Perkins Coie and Elias to, prove, to provide, quote, legal counseling and representation of the Clinton campaign in connection to its legal affairs, including the Federal Election Commission and other regulatory requirements and general organizational and compliance matters, end quote. A few months later, the DNC and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee engaged Perkins Coie to provide legal advice in connection with the Federal Election Commission and other regulatory requirements and general organizational and compliance matters. After these engagements, in the spring of 2016, Perkins Coie engaged Fusion GPS on behalf of the Clinton campaign. 
Fusion GPS was a Washington, D.C.-based consulting firm that provided research and strategic intelligence services to clients, including corporations and law firms. As set forth in the letter memorializing that engagement, the purpose was for Fusion to support Perkins Coie's legal advice to clients on, quote, defamation, libel, and similar laws in which accuracy is an essential legal element. Elias explained that Perkins Coie hired Fusion for research and investigative services to assist Elias and Perkins Coie in representing the Clinton campaign. As part of those services, Fusion provided research and other services that were used to, among other things, promote the Alpha Bank allegations to the media and the FBI. The Alpha Bank allegations. Actions by Sussman, Perkins Coie, and Joffe. The office's investigation revealed that beginning in late July or early August 2016, Sussman, Joffe, and agents of the Clinton campaign together assembled and disseminated the Alpha Bank allegations and other derogatory information about Trump and his associates to the media and then to the FBI. Generally speaking, the Alpha Bank allegations pertained to assertions that a secret email server located in Pennsylvania was configured to allow email communications between Alpha Bank and the Trump Organization through a Tor exit node, i.e. a node anonymized internet, for anonymized internet traffic. At Spectrum Health, a U.S.-based healthcare company located in Michigan. Beginning in the summer of 2016, Joffe worked with Sussman, Fusion GPS, a number of cyber researchers, and employees at multiple internet companies to assemble data and white papers. In connection with these efforts, Joffe used his access to non-public or proprietary internet data. Joffe also enlisted the assistance of researchers at a U.S.-based university, University One, that would be Georgia Tech, who were receiving and analyzing large amounts of internet data in connection with a pending federal government cybersecurity contract. That would be a uh, DARPA contract and DOD contract. Joffe tasked these researchers to mine internet data to establish a connection between Trump and Russia. In particular, in late July and early August, Joffe commenced a project in coordination with Perkins or with Sussman and Perkins Coie to support an inference and narrative tying Trump to Russia. For example, records show that on three days in August 2016, Joffe had meetings or conference calls with Sussman and Elias. At about the same time, Joffe began tasking his own employees and associates to mine and assemble internet data that would support such an inference or narrative. Joffe expressly stated in emails that a purpose of this effort was to please certain VIPs, apparently referring to Sussman, Elias, and the Clinton campaign. Among others whom Joffe called was an executive another of another technology company, that'd be Tech Company 3 Executive 1. Joffe had ownership interest in Tech Company 3. Joffe instructed Tech Company 3 Executive 1 to search data mined by his company and another affiliated company. For information concerning the online activities of Trump and his associates. Right, before I go on, I want to look at these footnotes. Um, I know all this. I know all this. Okay. The affiliated company was Packet Forensics, a company that, among other things, 
places or gains access to sensors on the internet's infrastructure that allow it to collect large quantities of internet domain uh, name system traffic from around the globe. Joffe, um, Joffe was an owner in Packet Forensics, DNS something. Was it DNS Lookup or DNS something? I can't remember the name of the DNS. There's one company had DNS in the name. Packet Forensics, DNS something, and uh, New Star. And then there's another company he has a connection to that um, is like this spam clickbait company that's uh, really gross. And it reminds me of his grandfather clock scam that he ran in the early 2000s or 90s, in the 90s maybe. Um, it just reminds me of it's like that kind of like shilly gross uh, thing, but in the internet world. Anyway, Joffe told tech company three executive one that he was work working with a person at a firm in Washington, DC with close ties to the Clinton campaign and the Democrat party. Joffe also provided to tech company three executive one, a document containing the physical addresses, email addresses, internet protocol addresses, email domains, and other personal information associated with various Trump associates, including information about some spouses and family members. Um, this is the Trump associates. I just want to check real quick. I'm pretty sure that tech company three executive one is Ray Salerno. I think it is. I think it's Ray Salerno, Salerno, something like that. And do you guys remember all the uh, Pentagon email address or Pentagon IP addresses that like disappeared and then were put back online right when Trump left office, like three minutes before he left office? Remember those? Um. This Ray Salerno guy was also involved with a company that handled those. Pretty sure it was Ray Salerno. But I could be wrong. There it is. Raymond Salino, not Salerno. Salino, that's it. Raymond Salino, yeah. So, Joff... The what who they're talking about in this is Ray Salino, who is also the guy that had to do there it is right there. Packet forensics and let's see Raymond Salino, senior vice president, new star, chief operating officer, succeeded John Malone, Tidewater Alaskan Associates. Says that he died in February 15th, 2016. Well, that doesn't make sense because Joffe's talking to him at this time right now. It must be confusing a different Salino. Yeah, this search right here must be confusing a different Salino. Yeah, this right here. This story, where three minutes after before Trump left office, um... 175 million addresses. Whoa. 
Anyway, I'm going to scroll. I don't want to scroll on that yet. I just, I remembered that that's who that was. All right. Tech company three executive one was highly uncomfortable with this task. And yeah. See, the reason I think about this is I'm like, Hmm, I wonder if Ray Salino actually flipped on Joffe and we don't know it yet. Still, according to Tech Company 3, Executive 1, he and others complied with the instructions because Joffe was a powerful figure at these companies. The companies thereafter embarked on a data analysis and opposition research project concerning Trump and his associates, which they codenamed Crimson Rhino. As part of the research project, Tech Company 3, Executive 1, and his associates drafted a report that they provided to Joffe. The report's preliminary result was that the researchers, quote, observed no connection that clearly indicated direct communications between said individuals in Russia. They would imply money transfers from Russia to the United States within the last 90 days. Joffe also tasked others, including an employee of Tech Company One, that's Newstar, to use resources at his companies to c- conduct opposition research about Trump, According to Tech Company One Employee One, one of the services that Tech Company One provided was access to domain name system information. As part of these services, Newstar, I'm going to just start saying Newstar here, Newstar stored approximately 150 billion DNS transactions per day, which was approximately five terabytes of data a day. Although Tech Company One Employee One acknowledged that Newstar did not conduct political research as part of its business operations. During the 2016 campaign, Joffe asked Newstar employee to run searches of Newstar's DNS data logs related to the Alpha Bank allegations. According to Newstar's employee one, this included creating scripts to pull data related to various domains and IP addresses, including the domain trumpemail.com. These guys are really clever and various domains that included the phrase alpha in them. Newstar employee one could not recall conducting any other searches of Newstar's DNS data for political projects or related in any way to specific political organizations. But Newstar's employee one never asked Joffe about the purpose of the project or whether these searches were on behalf of political campaign. Newstar employee one has stated in some and substance that he did not ask because he did not want to know. Joffe similarly tasked tech company two executive one. I think tech company two is DNS lookup. It's like DNS lookup or DNS something. I'm just going to drive. Okay. I'm looking it up guys. I'm looking, it's going to drive me nuts. Joffe. Companies, DNS. It's like DNS lookup or DNS.com or DNS connection.com or something. Ultra DNS. That's it. Ultra DNS. All right. So, Joffe similarly tasked Ultra DNS executive one and other researchers with with conducting opposition research regarding trump it doesn't list ultra dns isn't one i can click on so i don't know who this other director was i've probably come across his name but i don't remember it 
Remember, Joffe's a Clint is a uh, um, no name guy, Senator No Name. Uh, Joffe was a donor to uh, Senator No Name's campaign and a supporter, and literally said, "I consider myself a uh, No Name Republican." Quote unquote. Joffe similarly tasked Ultra DNS Executive One and other researchers with conducting opposition research regarding Trump. For instance. Joffe emailed these researchers the same Trump associates list that he provided to Tech Company 3. Among those whom Joffe and Tech Company 2 Executive 1 enlisted were researchers at University 1, that's Georgia Tech, who were assigned to then-pending federal cybersecurity contract with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. At the time, Joffe was negotiating an agreement between Newstar and University One, Georgia Tech, to sell large amounts of internet data to the university for use under the DARPA contract. The intended purpose of this agreement and of the University One's sensitive work with DARPA was to gather and analyze internet metadata to detect malicious cyber attacks. Both Joffe and Tech Company Two Executive One, that's Ultra DNS, worked with two of Georgia Tech researchers. They are researcher one and researcher two. Their names are Manos Antonakakis and something else. I can't, I can never remember the other guy's name. He wanted them to mine internet data to conduct opposition research. As part of these efforts, Sussman and Elias began facilitating collaboration and information sharing by Joffe, Fusion GPS, and the Clinton campaign. For example, email records reflect that in August 2016, Sussman began exchanging emails with personnel from Fusion and Elias, containing the subject line, quote, connecting you all by email. The contents of these emails have been withheld pursuant to asserted attorney-client privilege. And these are the ones that, these are some of the ones that Durham didn't get access to, it, it seems. Footnote is 1422. That is an email between Sussman, Simpson, Fritch, and Elias. Next footnote down here says Perkins Coie privilege logs dated September 7th, 2021. In the Sussman case, Fusion GPS withheld over 1,500 documents, claiming they were covered by attorney-client privilege as they were purportedly prepared to assist Perkins Coie in providing legal advice to the law firm's clients, the Clinton campaign and Fusion GPS, in the event that then-candidate Trump sued them for defamation. Before trial, the government challenged their privilege claims and successfully moved the court to inspect a sampling of approximately 38 documents in camera, meaning the judge looked at them privately. After reviewing the materials and receiving briefing not only from the government and Sussman's counsel, but also from Fusion GPS counsel, counsel for the DNC, and counsel for the Clinton campaign, the court determined that 22 of the 38 emails were improperly withheld as privileged. Specifically, the court rejected their privileged claims because the emails at issue, quote, solely related to disseminating the information that Fusion GPS and others had gathered. And I absolutely love it that Durham is taking the time to put that footnote here and uh, speak to this because one of the most significant things that came out of Sussman was Durham getting access to those me emails, excuse me, and breaking attorney client privilege on 22 out of 38 of them. 
But what Durham is leaving out here, at least so far, is that when they got access, the judge asked them, what about the other 1,500 emails or so? Because remember right here, it says 1,500 documents. After he got this, he said, the judge asked Durham's attorney, I think it was DeFilippis, asked him, what about the other 1,500 documents? Are you going to come back for those? Meaning, are you going to put the rest of the documents in front of me and ask me to decide attorney-client privilege? And Durham's attorney said, not for this trial. And it's a hint, guys. It's a hint. As part of these efforts, Sussman and Elias began facilitating, blah, 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 connecting you by email, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Later that month, Joffe also began communicating with Fusion GPS personnel. Email records offered at the Sussman trial and described in further detail below reflect that in the ensuing months, Fusion GPS employees communicated with news reporters regarding the Alpha Bank allegations and urged them to publish articles about them. Sussman took additional steps to integrate the Alpha Bank-related allegations into the Clinton campaign's opposition research efforts. For example, in the summer of 2016, Sussman met in Perkin Coie's office with Fusion Sheep with Fusion personnel and with Christopher Steele, whose dossier-related activities are described above. Boom. That is Sussman, Government Exhibit 602, email from Joffe to Laura Sego and Sussman, dated August 30, 2016. Fusion GPS similarly withheld the contents of such communications as subject to attorney-client privilege. You have August of 2016, you've got Sussman inside Perkins Coie's offices meeting with Fusion GPS personnel and Christopher Steele. Fusion had at the time retained Steele to conduct opposition research. Sussman and Steele had have each testified separately about the meeting and their accounts differ as to what occurred. Although Sussman testified before Congress that the purpose of the meeting was to, quote, vet Steele for the Clinton campaign, given Sussman's knowledge of national security matters. Sussman never acknowledged discussing the Alpha Bank allegations with Steele and has maintained that the contents of their meeting are privileged. In contrast, Steele testified under oath in a British legal proceeding during the meeting. Sussman told him about the Alpha Bank allegations. Steele further testified that after the meeting, Fusion personnel tasked Steele to research and produce intelligence reports about, the Al about Alpha Bank, which he did. According to government records and public information, Steele also later provided the substance of the Alpha Bank allegations to State Department personnel, and Fusion GPS and Steele provided such information to Bruce Orr, an official at the department, I mean DOJ. Emails, billing records, and testimonial evidence offered at trial show that during approximately the same time period and before approaching the FBI about these matters, Sussman provided the Alpha Bank allegations to Eric Lichtblow, a reporter for the New York Times. Law firm records reflect that after providing the Alpha Bank allegations to the media, Sussman apprised Elias of his efforts, who in turn appears to have communicated with the Clinton campaign's senior leadership concerning these issues. Emails and billing records further show that during the same time period, 
Sussman and Joffe worked together to draft a white paper, which summarized the Alpha Bank allegations and which Sussman provided to the FBI during his September 19th meeting with James Baker. Sussman billed significant time drafting this paper to the Clinton campaign. In addition, and as described in further detail below, Joffe also solicited input on his white paper from the University One researchers. Sussman incorporated at least one of the aforementioned researchers into his efforts to disseminate the Alpha Bank allegations to the media for the benefit of the Clinton campaign. For example, emails reflected on September 17, 2016, two days before his meeting with the FBI. Sussman emailed researcher one, re- University One researcher two, stating that we have a mutual acquaintance, in context apparently referring to Joffe. Soon thereafter, Sussman spoke with University One researcher two. During their conversation, Sussman told University One researcher two that the data underlying the Alpha Bank allegations had been lawfully collected, thus reflecting Sussman's apparent knowledge concerning the data's origins. University One researcher two also said that Joffe asked him to speak with the media about the Alpha Bank allegations, which he subsequently did. Actions by Tech Company 2, Executive One, and others, and additional actions by Joffe. The office gathered emails and communications between Joffe and employees of various internet companies and other researchers regarding the use of internet data related to the Trump campaign. Among the internet data Joffe and his associates obtained was DNS internet traffic pertaining to 1. Spectrum Health, 2. Trump Tower, 3. Trump Central Park West Apartment Building, and 4. The Executive Office of the President, the EOP. For example, Tech Company 2, Executive 1, referenced the Trump associates that Joffe had provided, quote, Regarding this whole project, my opinion is that from DNS, all we could gain, even in the best case, is an inference. I have not the slightest doubt that illegal money and relationships exist between pro-Russian and pro-Trump, meaning actual people very close to Trump, if not himself. But even if we found what Rodney asked us to find in DNS, we don't see the money flow, and we don't see the content of some messages saying, send me the money here. I could fill out a sales form on two websites, faking the other company's email address in each form and cause them to appear to communicate with each other in DNS. In other ways I can think of, and I feel sure University One Researcher Two can also think of. If Rodney can take the inference we gain through this team exercise and cause someone to apply more useful tools or more useful observation or study or questioning, then work to develop even an inference may be worthwhile. That is how I understood the task, because Rodney didn't tell me more context or specific things. What Cyber Researcher 1, and I believe that's Manos Antonakakis, but I'm not positive. I'm pretty sure it is, though, has been digging up is going to wind up being significant. It's just not the case that you can rest assured that Hillary's opposition research and whatever professional government and investigative journalists are also digging. They just don't all come up with the same thing or interpret them the same way. But if you find any benefit in what he has done or is doing, you need to say so to encourage him. Because we are both killing ourselves here every day for weeks. Trump advisor domains I've been using, these include all from Rodney's PDF, which is the Trump associates list. 
plus more from cyber researcher one's work. The above email reflects that Joffe, the fact that Joffe's tasking likely triggered or affected the research efforts that ultimately culminated in Sussman's meeting with Baker. Joffe's response states that, quote, task is indeed broad and that the ability to, quote, provide evidence of anything that shows an attempt to behave badly would make the VIPs happy. According to Joffe, the VIPs were looking for a true story that could be used as a basis for a closer examination, a predication for an investigation, right? And any interactions between Trump and Alpha Bank, quote, would be jackpot. Joffe proceeded to disseminate the Alpha Bank allegations despite having previously expressed and received from others expressions of serious doubt and differing views about their strength and purposely, purposefully crafted a written analysis to conceal the weaknesses of the allegations. For example, on August 21, 2016, Joffe urged the researchers to push forward with additional research concerning Trump, which he stated would, quote, give the base of a very useful narrative. Later in the same email, Joffe expressed his own belief that the TrumpEmail.com domain was a, quote, red herring, noting that the host for that domain, quote, is a legitimate, valid customer relationship management company. Joffe therefore concluded that, quote, we can ignore it, together with others that seem to be part of the marketing world. On August 22, 2016, University One researcher One expressed his view that Joffe's research project was flawed, stating that, quote, Let's for a moment think of the best case scenario where we are able to show somehow that DNS or otherwise communication exists between Trump and Russia. How do we plan to defend against the criticism that this is not spoofed UDP traffic we are observing? There is no answer to that. Let's assume again that they are not smart enough to refute our best case scenario. Rodney, do you realize that we will have to expose every trick we have in our bag to even make a very weak association? Let's all reflect upon that for a moment. Sorry, folks, but unless we get com combined net flow and DNS traffic collected at critical points between sus suspect organizations, we cannot technically make any claims that would fly public scrutiny. This is not a typical attribution problem when the two parties, defenders versus attackers, are clearly separated. In this case, we will have not only the Trump folks trying to shoot this down, but all the privacy freaks trying to come up with a crazy conspiracy, conspiracy on how we obtain the data. Sorry to say this, we are nowhere close to coming up with a plan to attack this problem that will fly in the public domain. The only thing that drives us at this point is that we just do not like Trump. This will not fly in the eyes of public scrutiny. Folks, I am afraid we have tunnel vision. Time to regroup. On September 14, 2016, Joffe solicited the views of the researchers on the white paper and asked these DNS experts to consider the paper not using their expertise, but conducting the reviews as if they were not experts. Quote, 
please read as if you had no prior knowledge or involvement and you were handed this document as a security expert, not a DNS expert. And we're asked, is this plausible as an explanation? Not to be able to say this is without a doubt fact, but to merely be plausible. Do not spend more than a short while on this. If you spend more than an hour, you have failed the assignment. Hopefully less. University One Researcher One replied, endorsing Joffe's approach, quote, a DNS expert would poke several holes in this hypothesis, primarily around visibility, about which very smartly you do not talk about. That being said, I do not think even the top security non-DNS researchers can refute your statements. Nice. University One Researcher One explained to our investigators that he endorsed Joffe's approach of downplaying the paper's weaknesses because Joffe was important to the success of the then-pending DARPA contract with University One and University One Researcher One therefore felt pressure to please Joffe. Apart from this email, however, University One Researcher One consistently maintained that the Alpha Bank data did not support any definitive conclusions. The following morning, University One Researcher Two responded to Joffe by disputing one of the paper's key findings, stating that, quote, Tor exit nodes, by definition, route traffic from all users since they do not, or route traffic, from all users since they do not know the origin of the traffic. To say that the Tor exit is exclusively used by AlphaBank goes too far. Tech Company 2 Executive 1 responded to Joffe, stating in part that the paper's conclusion was plausible in the narrow scope defined by Joffe, and noting in part that, quote, if the white paper intends to say that there are communications between at least AlphaBank and Trump, which are being intentionally hidden by AlphaBank and Trump, I absolutely believe I absolutely believe that is the case. University one researcher two replied on the same date, stating that he believed that there was a threshold of probable cause for criminal and other federal violations. On September 16th, 2016, Tech Company 2 Executive 1 emailed these researchers, discussing, among other things, the draft white paper's allegation that there was a Tor exit node at Spectrum Health that Alpha Bank had used to communicate with the Trump Organization. Tech Company 2 Executive 1 initially noted that University 1 Researcher 2 had given his adversaries every courtesy, and that if everyone in America were as measured, fair, and careful, what concerns could we ever have? Tech Company 2 Executive 1 continued that she had no reason to think that AlphaBank was a VPN somehow through mail1.trumpemail.com. Quote, that would suggest we are dealing with masterminds of the internet. Tech Company 2 Executive 1 added that she firmly believed that there were communications between the Trump Organization and AlphaBank and that she did not, quote, care in the least whether I'm right or wrong about VPN from AlphaBank Tor from Alpha Bank or just SMTP artifact pointing to a three-way connection. Rodney was carefully crafted or has carefully crafted a message that could work to accomplish the goals. Weakening that message in any way would, in my opinion, be a mistake. Oh, she's in on it. She is like, get Trump with this BS. Notably, Tor publishes a comprehensive list 
of exit nodes dating back to February 22nd, 2010. FBI experts were engaged. No, excuse me. FBI experts we engaged, meaning the special counsel's office, examined this data for dates between February 22nd, 2010 and September 1st, 2021. No instances of IP addresses in the range of 167.73XX assigned to Spectrum Health were ever indexed as Tor exit notes. The FBI experts advised that historical Tor exit note data conclusively disproves this white paper allegation in its entirety, and furthermore, the construction of the Tor network makes the described arrangement impossible. Even if true or indeed possible, using the Tor network in the alleged manner would result in worse anonymization and security than simply using Tor in its default configuration. The experts explained that it would instead amount to a static proxy with a known endpoint that could be more easily correlated with traffic to the relatively small number of guard nodes, allowing the identification or the true source IP much more easily than using a randomly selected node for each connection, as the system is designed to do. It is entirely likely that one or more users at some time connected to both Spectrum Health and AlphaBank using Tor may have even come through the same exit node, but this in no way indicates any kind of correlation given the deliberately random nature of Tor routing. Vertorgo, exactly right. Vertorgo remembers the Sussman trial and that the, a the FBI cyber agents who looked at the white paper were like, this is 51, 50-51-ish, <laughs> or 51-50-ish, or something like that. 51, I think it was 51, 51-50-ish, or something like Anyway, you got it, Vertorgo. You remember. Uh, in other words, it was um, We Todd Ed. That is what they're saying. It's We Todd Ed. Um, okay. I can hear my kids running around upstairs. They're going to want me to come hang out with them for a few minutes before they have to go to bed, watch a cartoon or something. So I'm going to choose this as the stopping point. We almost did three hours and we are stopping on page 255. The next sex session section, the next section is about Sussman's meeting with the FBI. This sets us up to have approximately 50 pages left and that's great um i'll go live on um i'm thinking i'll go live on saturday um but if i get the opportunity i'll do it tomorrow night but if not just look i'll post it'll probably be saturday if at, at the latest it'll be monday so just look for me to post it's like I normally do. I'll post letting everybody know, hey, I'm going live at this time. And I'll try to give some a notice of that. Um, so thank you, everyone. If you enjoyed this and you appreciate what I do, the links to support it are in the description. If you're watching on Rumble, please hit the thumbs up. So far, every one of my Durham Report episodes has made the Rumble leaderboard, which is pretty cool because we're doing some pretty nerdy stuff that not everybody would be interested in. but um yeah 
it's pretty cool to, to see that happen. So hit the thumbs up if you're on Rumble. And uh, y'all have a great one. Remember, we're not going to win every battle. And we can see that, right? We can see in the Durham report, we're not winning every battle right now. Some of these people, I would have liked to have seen Durham make referrals that are in the report, right? So we're not winning every battle right now, but we're going to win this war. God bless. Y'all take care of yourselves. I'll see you next time.